Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to um, an afternoon edition of the African History Network show. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. We are broadcasting on uh, our Blog Talk Radio channel, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show. And uh, we're also on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network, the African History Network. Uh, today is Tuesday, September uh, 5th, 2017. This is uh, day number uh, either 228 or 229 of the Donald Trump regime. I think this is day 229 of the Donald Trump regime. And we saw that um, he rescinded DACA the day. He sent out uh, his attorney general, Jefferson Borgard, Sessions III, to deliver the news, and we saw that um, we'll po- um, we sent out a, our email newsletter today, and we talked about that. That was one of the articles in our email newsletter, breaking story from NBCNews.com, and uh, we'll have some more information going about that, going out about that probably this evening as well. Okay, all right. So um, we're live. We're broadcasting on uh, Facebook Live. Also, I wanted to broadcast last night. And overslept. Um, I was going to broadcast around eight o'clock or nine o'clock, and I laid down to take a nap around seven thirty p.m. And when I I slept through my alarms for eight thirty and eight forty-five, and when I finally got up, it was midnight. So uh, I said, "Okay, so <laughs> we'll broadcast uh, today." All right. So on today's show, uh, we want to deal with um, it's a breaking news story about the cousin of Emmett Till, the cousin of Emmett Till. Now, we know the birthday of Emmett Till just passed about a month or so ago, and um, we have a story from uh, Washington Post and NewsOne.com that the cousin of Emmett Till, uh, one of the cousins of Emmett Till, Simeon Wright, Simeon Wright, who was the um, last, uh, who was the cousin who was one of the last people to see Emmett Till alive, okay, um, he passed away at age 74, all right? So we'll talk about that some. He was in the bedroom uh, with Emmett Till when the two white men came to uh, get him, okay? The uh, husband of um, Carolyn Bryant and uh, his cousin, uh, his brother-in-law, J.W. Millam, okay? He was, um, Simeon Wright was in the bedroom with Emmett Till um, when these two uh, 
uh, white men came to get him. Okay, and that was the last time uh, they saw Emmett Till alive. So we'll talk about that. Then um, yesterday was Labor Day. Yesterday was Labor Day, and you had Labor Day marches uh, across the country. Uh, You had um, parades, things like this. You had speeches talking about the history of the labor unions uh, in this country. Well, a lot of people don't know that uh, Labor Day has an African has African American roots also. Okay, Labor Day uh, helps uh, has African American roots as well. Okay, so we're going to talk about the African American roots of uh, Labor Day also, the African American origins um, uh, of Labor Day as well. Okay, very very important. And then we'll deal also some with the. Um, uh, history of the labor unions as well, because we see uh, a lot of labor unions popping up right after slavery ends, okay, in 1865. Even though labor unions go back to the uh, 1700s, like the mid, about the mid-1700s or so, you're going to see a lot of them pop up right after slavery ends. A lot of the large ones, like the uh, National Labor Union, just pops up right after uh, slavery ends, Okay. All right, so we want to welcome everybody to today's show. It's uh, Thursday, September 5th, 2017, and uh, we are live. And we're broadcasting on Blog Talk Radio also. We're broadcasting on Blog Talk Radio. So the call-in number is 914-338-1375. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. Uh, 914-338-1375. And uh, press the number one key to put you in queue so we can bring you on the air. Okay. All right. So I want to talk about that. And then uh, also there was an article from AtlantaBlackStar.com about uh, descendants of enslaved uh, uh, blacks who were owned by the Cherokee Nation. They have finally been granted tribal citizenship. All right. Um, Descendants of enslaved Africans owned by the Cherokee Nation. They have finally been giving, given tribal um, citizenship, and they sued actually back in about 2011, uh, I think it was, um, because they were being uh, stripped of their their rights and things like this in the um, Cherokee Nation. All right, so we'll talk about that, and then um, we know that uh, after the tragic death. Philando Castile, which took place July of 2016. We learned a lot about him. We learned that he worked at a school, and um, we also learned that um, he bought lunches for children who could not afford lunches. Well, there's been a uh, a children's fund uh, set up in his name um, recently, and the blackhomeschool.com has an article about that as well as Huffington Post, uh, Huffington Post, Huffington Post Black Voices. Uh, and then we'll also deal with this day in African-American history as well, okay? So the call-in number is 914-338-1375, 914-338-1375 is the call-in number. If you have a question or comment, press the number one key to put you in queue so we can bring you on the air. Press the number one key to put you in queue so we can bring you on the air also, Okay. All right, and 
we have a uh, bundle pack that's on sale right now, the Redistributing the Pain bundle pack. Uh, it's on sale right now, only $40. is a six-DVD set uh, of mine. You get six of my presentations for $40, and it includes um, the presentation I did dealing with the history of the Nat Turner Rebellion of um, 1831. Okay, that's in there. And then also my presentation dealing with redistributing the pain, redistributing the pain, how African-Americans historically fought back with economic boycotts, redistributing the pain. Um, so this is a six DVD set. It's uh, regular price is $95. It's on sale $40 for a limited time only uh, right now. So you can place your orders today. Uh, we'll post a link here. Um and let's see here. We'll post a link here in just a second on the thread of the broadcast. $5. Okay. Because I have the information right here. And it was in the uh, email newsletter that I sent out also. All right. So uh, on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now it's correct wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man's thoughts, you can control the compass of his actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the show. We deal with current events and history and politics education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, to 22828. Sign up for our email newsletter. Also go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Sign up for our email newsletter there as well, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Okay. Um I want to let you know that the uh, elementary, elementary Genocide Part 3 Academic Holocaust documentary from Director Raheem Shabazz is available right now at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. And I'm featured in that documentary along with uh, Professor Kabahaya Wata Kamene, um, you, who, who you've seen in Hidden Colors, and Professor James Small, Shaharazad Ali, Dr. Boyce Watkins. It deals with uh, the school to prison pipeline, deals with uh, taking control of our children's education, a number of different topics. So it's available right now at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, Elementary Genocide Part 3. We also have a bundle pack uh, as well, and uh, you get all three installments of Elementary Genocide for $50, or the single uh, DVD is $20, and you get uh, one of my DVD presentations uh, free with each copy uh, that you purchase also, okay? All right, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right, so, um, and we'll post a link here on the um, thread of the Facebook Live broadcast as well. All right, so I, I got the news this morning. I saw a article. I was up this morning uh, preparing for the show, and I saw a... Um, uh, article from uh, news1.com news1.com and um then I saw the article from Washington Post 
Six decades after the murder of Emmett Till, the cousin who saw him last dies at age 74. This is from the Washington Post. Uh, News1.com has an article also. Um, Emmett Till's cousin who saw him last dies. Emmett Till's cousin who saw him last dies. Simeon Wright was his name. And Simeon Wright wrote about the events surrounding the kidnapping and vicious murder of his cousin Emmett Till, which took place in August of um, 1955, actually um, August 28th, uh, 1955. Okay, so uh, when we look at the article from Washington Post, it talks about how on a warm uh, August night in 1955, Simeon Wright woke to the sound of unfamiliar voices. Opening his eyes, he found two white men standing at the foot of his bed holding a flashlight and a gun. They were after uh, his uh, 14-year-old cousin, Emmett Till, who was still asleep beside him, but would soon be kidnapped, brutally murdered, and dumped into a river. It was memories of that historically infamous night that uh, that, uh, Simeon Wright, who died uh, on uh, yesterday, he passed away Monday, uh, September 4th, at the age of 74, he quietly carried he quietly carried uh, these memories with him until publishing his firsthand account in a uh, 2010 book. Uh, this morning on News One Now with Roland Martin, Roland uh, also interviewed um, uh, another cousin of Emmett Till, her name is Erica, and she heads up a. Um, it's an Emmett Till uh, nonprofit organization. She heads up also. Now, uh, these memories are uh, historically infamous. These memories of that historically infamous uh, night that Simeon uh, Simeon Wright quietly carried with him until oh, I'm sorry. Uh, he he passed away Monday uh, morning from complications from bone uh, cancer at his home in Countryside, Illinois, according to the Chicago Tribune. He was 74 years old and survived, and survived by his wife and extended family. Now, Simeon Wright was 12 years old and living in Money, Mississippi, uh, when his cousin Emmett Till visited from Chicago in the summer of 1955. It was August 1955. And uh, he was there for the moments of that visit that would transform Emmett Till from an innocent teenager to face uh, to the face of of Southern Jim Crow violence and brutality throughout the civil uh, rights era down to this day, and uh, some people look at the uh, killing of Emmett Till and the trial and the galvanization around this. Some people look at this as the uh, actual beginning of the modern day civil rights movement. Okay, some people look at the um, Montgomery bus boycott, okay, which starts December 1st, 1955, because of, sorry, December 5th, 1955, because of Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, December 1st, 1955. Some people look at that as the beginning of the modern day civil rights movement, okay? The majority of people look at the Montgomery bus boycott as the beginning of the modern day civil rights movement. But you have some people to look at um, the killing of Emmett Till, which, which took place uh, a couple a, a few months before that. This was August of 1955. 
and you have the Montgomery bus boycott starting December 5th, 1955, okay? And then you have a smaller percentage who look at the Brown versus Board of Education desegregation case of 1954. Some people look at that as the beginning of the modern-day civil rights movement. So Emmett Till was visiting from Chicago in Money, Mississippi, and Simeon Wright was there for the moments of that visit that would transform Emmett Till from an innocent teenager to the face of Southern Jim Crow violence and brutality throughout the civil rights era down to today. Uh, So Simeon Wright and his cousin Emmett Till were together when Emmett Till allegedly whistled at a white woman named Carolyn Bryant at the convenience store she owned with her husband, Roy. Okay. And Simeon Wright said Emmett Till was, quote unquote, always joking around and was likely trying to get a laugh out of his cousins. But the whistle struck Simeon Wright, who feared the overwhelming presence of the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi to the core. He feared them to the core. Chicago Magazine quoted Simeon Wright as saying the joke, quote, scared us half to death. A black boy whistling at a white woman in Mississippi. No. Okay. Now, he also, when he left, he said, bye. He said, bye, baby, to Carolyn Bryant. Okay. Um, If you watch Eyes on the Prize, all right, if you watch Eyes on the Prize, um, the actually in the first installment, they deal with Emmett Till. And it's one, it may be Simeon Wright who's in there. And he said that when Emmett Till left the store, he said, bye, baby, to Carolyn Bryant. All right. Now, this is by no means justifying what happened to Emmett Till, but I'm, I'm going to de- try to deal with some facts here, okay, in, in regards to this case. Okay, so um, so there were some friends with Emmett Till and his cousin, uh, Simeon Wright, and the group promised not to tell Simeon Wright's father about the incident, expecting that he would uh, rush Emmett Till out of town if he ever find out. But it was at 2 a.m., August 28th. This was a few days later. And, you know, time had gone by. So the incident took place August 24th, right? And a few days went by. They had basically forgotten about it. Uh, Emmett Till's friends, his cousins, they had basically forgotten about it. But early in the morning of August 28th, 2 a.m., Roy Bryan and his half-brother, J.W. Millam, arrived at... Simeon Wright's house. So he lived there with his father, Mose Wright, okay, who uh, was the great uncle of um, uh, Emmett Till, okay? And they snatched Emmett Till from the bed he shared with Simeon Wright. Uh, Emmett Till's body was later, uh, a few few days later, found uh, beaten, and uh, his body was found in the Tallahatchie River with a 75-pound cotton gin fan tied to his neck with barbed wire. Uh, The horrific scene became an instant symbol of racial violence. Emma Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, arranged for her son's body to be on display at the funeral, an open casket funeral, allowing photographers to capture lasting images of an anguished mother and her mutilated child. In Jet Magazine had the um, uh, picture of Emmett Till's uh, face, his body, is showing his face 
mutilated, beaten face, uh, swollen. Uh, this was on the cover of, of Jet Magazine. And she said, basically, she said she wanted the world to see what these people had done to her son. So this story was covered internationally. It wasn't just national media that covered this. This was covered internationally as well. So um, Roy Bryant, the husband of Carolyn Bryant, the white woman uh, in the store, and J.W. Millam, who was his brother-in-law, went on trial for murder with Simeon Wright's father uh, even identifying them in court. But they were acquitted by an all-white jury despite later confessing to the crime of Look Magazine. So they were interviewed by Look Magazine later, uh, uh, later that year. Um, and they confessed. They were paid uh, $4,000. Uh, they were interviewed by William Bradford Huey, uh, who was a journalist uh, for Look Magazine. And uh, this interview took place uh, four months after the killing of Emmett Till. So it may have been January of the next year because uh, Emmett Till was uh, killed August 28th of um, 1955. Okay. And they're going to confess to the, so, so they were found not guilty. Okay. They were found not guilty of killing Emmett Till and the, uh, the defense attorney even asserted that uh, Mamie Till Bradley uh, or Mamie Till Mosby at the time, maybe T- Mamie Till, Mamie Till at the time she remarried. But they even asserted, the defense attorney asserted that Mamie Till took out an insurance policy on Emmett Till and purposely sent him to Mississippi to be killed. And they asserted that the body that was found was not the body of Emmett Till but it was a cadaver planted by the NAACP. Historically, no jury in the state of Mississippi had ever convicted a white person for killing an African-American if the crime involved sexual aggressions towards a white woman. So the all-white, all-male jury deliberated for only 67 minutes before quitting uh, Roy Bryan and J.W. Millam of uh, the brutal killing and torture of Emmett Till. Blackpast.org, blackpast.org has a good article about this. Um, just look at, search for Emmett Lewis Teal or Emmett Teal at blackpast.org, okay? All right, how's everybody doing today? Hey, you can give us a call if you have a question or comment. Uh, I, po- I just posted the link here also on the thread of the broadcast for the um, um, bundle pack of the, the uh, elementary genocide uh, bundle pack also available at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We just posted that here on the thread of um, of the broadcast, okay, on Facebook. All right, you can give us a call if you have a question or comment. Nine one four three three eight thirteen seventy five. Nine one four three three eight thirteen seventy five is the call in number if you have a question or comment. And uh, I'm going to post the uh, information about today's show again here on the thread, and I'll pin it so it stops moving. All right. Okay, right now we're talking about the death of Simeon Wright. Simeon Wright was uh, a cousin of Emmett Till, and he was uh, 
uh, one of the last people to see uh, Emmett Till alive. Okay, uh, he passed away Monday, September fourth, two thousand seventeen, at the age of seventy four from bone cancer. Now, um, so the Wrights, uh, Simeon Wrights family, the Wrights soon left Mississippi for the Chicago suburbs. Uh, this was after the uh, trial took place. As recounted in Chicago Magazine, Simeon Wright got into plenty of fights after the move, after they moved to Chicago. He wasn't meek in the face of slurs uh, from uh, white children, from white boys. Still, he graduated from Argo High School in 1962 and worked as a pipe fitter, according to the Chicago Tribune. Uh, in his 20s, Simeon Wright found a kind of comfort in Christianity, even forgiving his cousin's killers. Later in life, he was a deacon in the Argo Temple uh, Church of God in Christ, according to the Chicago Magazine. And uh, the church was pastored by Emmett Till's cousin and founded by his maternal grandmother. Now, in a Chicago Tribune obituary, uh, uh, Simeon Wright's wife, Annie Wright, said her husband, quote, got got through it with the Lord's help, end quote, adding that he focused his energy on mentoring young, mentoring young boys and teaching them how to navigate life's setbacks. Even with his newfound spirituality, Simeon Wright said he was haunted by historical inaccuracies, inaccuracies surrounding Emmett Till's death. He co-authored, um, he co-authored his co-authored book, Simeon's Story, an eyewitness, eyewitness account of the kidnapping of Emmett Till. Okay, that came out in 2010. Simeon's story, an eyewitness account of the kidnapping of Emmett Till, aims to clarify eyewitness accounts and other reports that lived on decades after the lynching, including the fact that Emmett Till's wallet did not contain a photo of a white girl and that Emmett Till did not address... Uh, uh, Bryant on a dare, okay? And we know that um, recently, uh, we've talked about this before, you had the uh, story that came out in January of this year. How Car- um, So there's a, Vanity Fair was one of the ones that uh, broke this story, okay? And um how author Timothy Tyson found the woman at the center of the Emmett Till case. How author Timothy Tyson found the woman at the center of the Emmett Till case. And what we found out found out in this article from January 26, 2017, is that um, Carolyn Bryant lied in uh, lied on the witness stand in part of her testimony. Okay, uh, the part of her testimony where she lied was that. Um, Emmett Till did not try to grab her and he did not verbally threaten her. On the witness stand, Carolyn Bryan asserted that Emmett Till grabbed her and verbally threatened her. She did. She, she said that while she was unable to utter the quote unquote unprintable word he had used uh, as one of the defense lawyers put it, quote, he had done um, he had done something with white women before. Then she added, I was just scared to death. A version of her damning allegation was uh, also made by the defendant's lawyers to reporters. 
the jury did not hear Carolyn Bryant's words because the judge had dismissed them from the courtroom while she spoke, ruling that her testimony was not relevant to the actual murder. But the court spectators heard her and her testimony was put on the record because the defense wanted her, her words as evidence in a possible appeal in the event that the defendants were convicted. Okay, so a new book came out called The Blood of Emmett Till, The Blood of Emmett Till, uh, written by Timothy Tyson. And um, he talked, he dealt, he revealed an interview that he did with um, Carolyn Bryant years ago. Um, and in, in the article, it says, uh, quote, that part's not true. Uh, Carolyn Bryant told uh, uh, Timothy Tyson about her claim that Emmett Till had made verbal and physical advances on her. As far as the rest of what happened that evening in the country, she said she couldn't remember. Okay, so the most damaging portion of this that Emmett Till tried to physically uh, make a physical advance on her, was verbally abusive to her, um, physically tried to grab her, that's not true at all. Okay, and it appears this is what she told her husband. So it came out that part of her testimony and part of her allegations were a lie. So read this article from uh, VanityFair.com, Vanity Fair magazine, how author Timothy Tyson found the woman at the center of the Emmett Till case with their renewed cultural interest in the 1955 murder that uh, catalyzed the 20th century civil rights movement An interview with the author of a new book who tracked down the lone hidden woman at the, at the center. And then you have, um, uh, there's another article here from the root.com. Um, woman at woman, woman who calls Emmett Till's death admits to lying. Woman who calls Emmett Till's death admits to lying. Okay. Um, so Timothy Tyson interviewed Carolyn uh, Bryant, who has remarried. Her last name is Dunham now, D-O-N-H-A-M. He interviewed her in 2007, and she uh, she admitted to lying about the most uh, damaging part of her testimony. Okay, um, uh, she she re she reportedly told Timothy Tyson that the claim that Emmett Till made verbal and physical advances towards her was not true. She also went on to say, quote, nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. Nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. Okay. All right. So uh, this is an article from the root.com. I have a file on Emmett Till. Okay. Cause I've dealt with this before on my shows and on 9, 10 AM, the superstation. So I have a file folder on, uh, on Emmett Till, a uh, woman who calls Emmett Till's death admits to lying. woman who calls Emmett Till's death admits to lying. Okay. And his birthday was in, um, July. I think it was July. His birthday just passed. I know Brianna, uh, I know there was an article from the root.com from Brianna Edwards. Uh, yeah, July 25th uh, was his birthday. He would have been 76 years old. And I, I talked about this on one of my shows. I think we did a Facebook live broadcast about this as well. 
Um, today would have been Emmett Till's 76th birthday if a white woman didn't lie on him. This is an article that uh, Brianna Edwards wrote um, back uh, July 25th, 2017. Um, today would have been Emmett Till's 76th birthday if a white woman didn't lie on him. And she's correct. She's correct. All right. Okay. So 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. Please share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Please share this broadcast on your uh, Facebook page, 914-338-1375, okay? Did the family get some type of compensation? Not that I know of family not that I know of the family didn't get compensation. Now, uh, the Department of Justice is looking looking at reopening his case, or they may have reopened his case. Uh, last I heard, that back in April, they were they were con- the Department of Justice is considering reopening the Emmett Till murder case. Okay, because um, I think that has to do with the evidence um, coming out that. Uh, Carolyn Bryant lied about some of her allegations about Emmett Till and, and some of her testimony. Okay. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens there. You have to keep in mind who your attorney general is, Jefferson Borgar Sessions III. And uh, you see what he just did today with DACA. This is what I warn people about. I, I warn people that how dangerous Donald Trump would be as president and what he would do. Uh, somebody posted uh, DACA uh, deals with, it's not just for Hispanics, DACA deals with people of color. That's true, even though with DACA, that's for um, uh, basically children who were brought here um, when they were younger. So to be to apply for DACA, you had to be under 16 years old. You could not be older than 31. And, um, I mean, they're out protesting uh, in the streets over this now. But uh, it's approximately 800,000, 92% are Hispanic, 1.1% are, are black. Uh, they're from Africa, they're from the Caribbean, et cetera. About 3% are Asian, okay? Contrary to popular belief, they cannot get financial aid to go to college. They can't get Pell Grants. They can't get student loans. They cannot apply for welfare either. Okay. But they contribute a lot to the economy. So you have some people that say, well, they're taking jobs away from, from black people. Okay. Let's deal with this two ways. First of all, show me the jobs that they have that they took away from black people. Show me what type of jobs they have that they took away from black people. Number one. Number two, what really ruins that argument is that you have about 6.5 million jobs right now in America that are unfilled. You have approximately 6.5 million jobs in America right now that are unfilled. So that just throws that argument right out the window. I know a lot of black Americans, not Pan-Africans, but a lot of black Americans like to, like to give, give that argument. Okay, but when you actually look at the facts, it's like, wait a second, you have 6.5 million jobs unfilled right now in the U.S. Now, what's your excuse? See, what's really taking place is you have the one percent. 
because of white supremacy and racism, pitting groups of oppressed people against one another. This is what's really taking place. You have the 1%. See, nobody wants to talk about the corporations that profit, that exploit the labor of Hispanics or immigrants come to this country. They don't want to talk about that. They want to pick groups of oppressed people against each other and have them fight over scarce wealth and re- scarce wealth and resources while the 1% benefits. Okay? It's the, it's, the, it's the same argument that people made during slavery uh, saying that the slaves were doing the jobs, taking away the jobs from white people and uh, uh, really looking at the sla- at looking at enslaved Africans negatively as if we volunteered ourselves to be slaves. No, it was the wealthy white people who were exploiting our labor. Well, it's the 1% Exploiting the labor of Hispanics, pitting Hispanics against African-Americans, exploiting the labor of other immigrants, it's the same thing. You're dealing, with this, you're dealing with the same thing. What a lot of people don't want to tell you is that factory output has doubled since the 1980s, but they're doing it with one-third the labor force. Factory output has doubled since the 1980s, but they're doing it with one-third the labor force. Okay, so um, and just this past weekend on uh, MSNBC, they talked about how, you know, President uh, well, Trump, he's not my president. He ain't going to be there for much longer. But Trump had a meeting with CEOs and he was saying, we're going to bring the jobs back and blah, blah, blah. And a couple of them told him, said, Mr. Trump, he's a, you know, we have the jobs now. We can't fill them. They said, we have the jobs now. We can't fill them. Okay, so. This is uh, something that's going on right now that a lot of people don't know about, why they, why they want to uh, blame Hispanics or this group or that group. They're all being exploited by the uh, uh, 1%. Uh, YahooNews.com had an article about this. I'm going to try to see if I can pull up that article from uh, Yahoo News. But... Um, this is a little known fact that's taking place right now. There are more, you have more jobs, uh, more unfilled jobs available right now than basically any time in history. Uh, let's see if we can find this article. Okay, 914-338-1375. It's the call-in number if you have a question or comment, uh, 914-338-1375. Press the number one key to put you in queue so we can bring you on the air um, when you call in. And you can um, also listen to the show uh, at that uh, number also, 914-338-1375. All right. I'm trying to find that article now. Um, U.S. has record six million job openings. CNN, money.cnn.com. U.S. has record six million job openings, even as, um, what is this? Even as, yeah, so they have that one. Uh, Yahoo had an article. I'm trying to find an article from Yahoo. Uh, August of 
2017, um, Washington Post had the article, there are 7 million unemployed and 6.2 million job openings. And as somebody who was actually involved in, in, in uh, I used to work for a job matching company, and then I also used to manage a small business. There are also uh, multiple reasons why people are unemployed as well. As, some, as, some, as somebody who organized two major career fairs for a local community college and went out and recruited about 30 employers, there, there, there's some, there's some extenu- there are other reasons why some people are unemployed. It's not because Hispanics took their jobs either. I can tell you that right now. All right. Okay, so let's continue. All right, so on uh, Facebook, Todd said, can they prosecute? Um, Can who prosecute? Yolanda, they have been doing that for a very long time, putting us against one another. The most hopeful and damning thing is what they tell different nationalities from different countries about black people when they come to this country. That's true. That's white supremacy. That's white supremacy. Uh, Linda said, love your insight. Viewing in Oklahoma City. Brianne's in the Dirty South. Paul Martin, Albany, New York, checking in. All right. Okay, let's continue here. So the article from um, Washington Post from August, this is just last month. There are 7 million, un- 7 million unemployed and 6.2 million job openings. What's the problem? The United States has a record 6.2 million job openings. It's the highest number since the Labor Department began tracking job postings in, in, in 2000, in the year 2000. You have the highest number of available jobs in 17 years. Now, all this didn't happen under Trump because under President Obama, it was about five, when President Obama left office, it was about 5 million to 5.5 million available jobs available. At the same time, there are 7 million unemployed Americans. That's almost one job for every person searching for a role. This should this should be a no-brainer, right? Get the jobless onto the doorsteps of these employers, okay? One of the problems is training. The training that's needed. It has to be this is what this is what some of the CEOs were telling Trump. You have to have training programs where people are being trained to do these particular jobs. Uh, There are two fundamental problems with the job market today. Businesses complain they can't find qualified workers to fill the jobs, and workers complain they aren't getting paid enough. The view from a lot of chief executives is is that there aren't any good workers left. Over half a million small business owners in America say uh, there are, quote, few or no qualified applicants, end quote, for the jobs they have open right now, according to the latest um, NFIB, NFIB small business survey released hours before the Labor Department said there uh, was a record number of job openings. We have heard uh, for years uh, that there aren't enough computer programmers, but the grumbling goes deeper than that. Too many workers these days show up drunk or high on weed, managers say, or they refuse to work late or on weekends. Now, as somebody who's been involved in hiring, I can tell you, now I'm not talking about all African Americans, 
I'm not talking about all African Americans, and this wasn't this was not the majority. We basically served the African American community. This was not the majority of applicants that we had. This was not the majority, but probably for ten to fifteen. Well, let me let me put it to you like this: it probably affected maybe about twenty percent of the applicants we had. But we had people who came to us and said, because a lot of these jobs we were getting, them, we were, they were applying for, required a drug test. And they said, I recently used marijuana. We had a program where we were getting people into uh, the skill, skills trades at, uh, with General Motors here in the Detroit area. They do. They don't just do a drug test with GM. They do a hair follicle test. A hair follicle test goes back six months to twelve months. A hair follicle test is more accurate and, and it will go back further than a urine drug test. And the guy we were working with, who was African American, he was um, heading. He was heading up. Um, a skilled trades program, he said they had situations. He told us they, they had situations where you had people who passed the written test and the math test and things like this, and they were on the floor working. They had just got hired. They were on the floor working at GM, and the drug test came back, and it came back positive, and they were pulled off the floor and fired. So there are, as somebody's been involved in hiring, there are extenuating circumstances when it comes to unemployment. Does discrimination play a part? Yes, discrimination plays a part. Absolutely discrimination plays a part. But discrimination is not the only thing, and discrimination is something you can, discrimination is something we can work around. There are ways to work around that. Number one, everybody you apply for is not going to discriminate against you. One one of the problems that we found was that um, when people market themselves, when people do interviews and when people market themselves, even when they submit their resumes online, they don't market themselves as a problem solver. Every job opening that you see exists because there's a problem that exists in that company that they cannot solve with the people who are already working in that company. So they have to allocate funds to recruit new people and to pay new people. A lot of the resumes we saw were just terrible because people are not presenting themselves as a problem solver and they're not highlighting on their resume how a track record of solving problems in the past. Show us what type of benefit you were to the companies you work for in the past. How did you solve problems? How did you help increase revenue? How did you help increase profitability? So even though discrimination is a problem, there are ways to work around that. Another problem we found was that when people apply online for um, jobs, monster.com, career builder, whatever it is, When there's a job description on those online websites, you should 
you should have uh, those keywords of what they're looking for in the job description. You should have those keywords in your resume. The reason why is because they use a scanner called an OCR, optical character recognition. And what this does is this searches for keywords. It searches for the keywords that they have in their job description. It searches for those keywords in your resume. So when you submit a resume for a marketing uh, analyst or a financial analyst or a customer service rep or whatever it is, and they have these keywords in their job description of what they're looking for, and you don't have a lot of those keywords in your resume, guess what? Your resume gets overlooked. So most of the people who we're dealing with didn't even know this. So many of us don't even understand how the game is played. And then we wonder why we keep getting, we're not scoring any points. Many of us are playing football and don't know the difference between the first down and the touchdown and wonder why we don't score any points. Okay, but then we want to blame Hispanics for taking jobs. Really? You had, you you have when you look at when you we just posted the article here from um I just posted the article from Washington Post. Okay? And Washington Post they had these really long ass links for the articles. So it gave an error message. So I'll post the name of this article and you can Google this, right? It's from Washington Post. Seven there's six point two million job openings. This is from last month. 6.2 million job openings, okay? And the reason why people are unemployed, reason why people are not getting these 6.2 million job openings is not because of Hispanics. It's not because of immigrants. And the, and the, the corporations are saying we have job openings. We can't find the employees, okay? But it's a convenient, it's a convenient excuse to target and oppress people. To, it's a convenient excuse to target Mexicans, which then become a catch-all for Hispanics that taps into the fears of many white people of a browning of America and, and them being overran by Hispanics and allegedly taking opportunities. But they don't want to deal with the fact that corporations are having record profits and factory output has doubled since the 1980s, but they're doing it with one-third the labor force because they're using automation, technology, robots, software programs, things like this. Yes, jobs have been shipped overseas, but millions of jobs have been eliminated because of automation. And that issue is not being addressed. It's, It's much easier to target Mexicans. All right, then CNNMoney.com has an article from June 6, 2017. U.S. has record 6 million job openings, even as 6.8 million people are unemployed. And the unemployment rate is the lowest it's been in about 17 years, 16, 17 years. It's at 4.4%, largely due to President Barack Obama because it was 4.9% when Trump came into office. It peaked at about 11%. Um, I think it was 2010, 2011, something like that. It peaked at about 11%. It was 4.9% when President Obama left office. So when Trump talks about record low, uh, record low unemployment rate, 
is like, wait a second, man. Who who you think did the heavy lifting so you could get it down to 4.4? It was 4.3% the month before last. Who you think did the heavy lifting to get it from 11% down to 4.9 so you could brag about it dropping six-tenths of a percentage point? So you can check out these uh, you can check out these articles here. All right. So if you have a question or comment, so call in the three one zero area code. I see you there. Press the number one key if uh, you have a question or comment. Nine one four three three eight thirteen seventy five is the call in number if you have a question or comment. Nine one four three three eight thirteen seventy five is the call in number if you have a question or comment. All right. Um, so Yolanda on Facebook said, "Thank you so much." for giving us information on how to play the game. It's on and we have uh, to take responsibilities for what we can do to cause our own downfall and we cannot give them ammunition. That's correct. One thing you could do is stop smoking marijuana unless it's for medicinal purposes, unless it's for like, like it's actually prescribed by a doctor. Okay. I mean like a, a doctor who went to medical school. Okay. I'm all for holistic health, but the recreational usage of marijuana is uh, that was that was introduced in the U.S. by Mexicans in the early 1900s. And the term that the term marijuana is a Spanish term. It was a Mexican term because previously previously before that in the U.S. it was referred to as as cannabis or hemp. Okay, so um, the reason why. Uh, when you look at hip hop music, and I'm not talking, I'm not talking about all hip hop. And you can give us a call nine one four three three eight thirteen seventy five nine one four three three eight thirteen seventy five is the call in number if you have a question or comment. Okay, I'm, I'm not talking about all hip hop. I'm talking about the destructive, commercialized hip hop. The reason why there is a proliferation of the promotion of drugs in negative hip hop music is that it, it, it has been taken over by corporate conglomerates and they're using, using that to target African-American youth and help destroy African-American youth. This is why they have black artists promoting the usage of illegal drugs in the music. This is why, because if they wanted to take out an ad, if they wanted to take out a billboard or an ad on TV that says smoke weed every day, and to promote the uses of marijuana, promote the uses of molly, promote the uses of illegal drugs, things like this, promote the uses of ec- ecstasy, all right? They couldn't do it. FCC regulations won't allow them to do that, but they can put it in the music, and it's no problem. And, and, and they'll, hear the music, they'll, hear the song, they'll hear the song more times than they'll see the ad on television. They'll, hear, they'll see the music video most likely more times than they'll see the ad on the television on the television because it's a vision that tells lies. So you have to understand white supremacy and racism, what it is and how it works. Because when I listen to white, white artists, I listen to white music when I'm up late at night and I watch fuse TV. And this is what I do. I go, I watch an hour of, of the videos on fuse TV. Then I watch an hour of the videos on, um, uh, B B E T uh, hits where they show the hip hop videos or something like that. I watch an hour of that. I watch an hour of Fuse. When I listen to Slacker Radio and I listen to the day's hits on Slacker Radio, 
Then I listen to the hip hop stations on Slacker Radio, right? The topic, what they're talking about in the music is different. And you see a high proliferation of references to drug usage, promiscuity, uh, violence, alcohol consumption, and negative hip hop than you do in the top 40 music and the music largely targeting white, uh, uh, white youth, uh, white teenagers, things like this. So if you want to destroy a nation, you do it through the music because the music hits the youth first. If you want to destroy a nation, you do it through the music because the music hits the youth first. Okay. So this is what's taking place. All right. Um, Okay, we'll go to the phone lines in just a minute here. Calling numbers 914-338-1375, 914-338-1375. Pressing number one key to put you in queue so we can bring you on the air, 914-338-1375. Here you listen to a afternoon edition of the African History Network show. Uh, I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network and uh, host of the African History Network show. Um the bundle pack, the redistributing the pain uh, DVD bundle pack that we have, uh, it's on sale now. It went on sale today. It's on sale forty dollars. Regular price is uh, ninety five dollars. Okay, uh, regular value is ninety five dollars. In this bundle pack, you get my presentation dealing with the Nat Turner Rebellion of eighteen thirty one, the rebirth of a nation. Uh, did that in November two thousand sixteen. You get the time we have been waiting for is now. Colin Kaepernick, The National Anthem, Too Many Slave Movies, and the Black Bank Movement. Did that September of um, 2016. You get my uh, presentation, the four-hour presentation, Redistributing the Pain, Redistributing the Pain, How African Americans Historically Fought Back with Economic Boycotts, Redistributing the Pain, How African Americans Historically Fought Back with Economic Boycotts, so I deal with a history of us using different types of economic withdrawal strategies to fight back against white supremacy. Also, uh, you get the uh, presentation I did in 2016 in African Liberation Day here in Detroit, dealing with an overview of redistributing pain. Uh, also, my presentation dealing with the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments as well, and how Richard Nixon's war on drugs was a war on the African-American community. I did that September 25th, 2016. How Richard Nixon's war on drugs was a war on the African-American community. So that's available at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We just posted the link here on the thread of the broadcast. That's the uh, Redistributing the Pain um, uh, bundle pack, Redistributing the Pain uh, bundle pack. Okay, that's on sale right now, $40.00. Place your orders today and all of my presentations, all my DVD lectures are at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right. So um, back to the story about uh, Emmett Till. Uh, Washington Post had an article from this morning, September 5th. This was posted at 5.45 a.m., six decades after the murder of Emmett Till, the cousin who saw him last dies at age 74. Um, so his name was Simeon Wright. He passed away Monday of, uh, bone cancer. Uh, he co-authored a book in 2010 called Simeon's Story, an eyewitness account of the kidnapping of Emmett Till. And this story aimed to clarify eyewitness accounts, uh, and other reports that lived on decades after the lynching of Emmett Till, including the fact that Emmett Till's wallet did not contain a photo of a white girl 
and that Emmett Till did not address uh, Carolyn Bryant on a dare. Okay. Now, the book was also an eloquent, albeit chilling, recounting of life for a young African-American man uh, growing up in the Jim Crow era. Okay. Um, Quote, any black person brave, uh, Simeon uh, Wright in the book wrote, quote, any black person brave enough to violate this system, referred to the system of Jim Crow, was immediately confronted by angry white men, usually with murder on their minds. There was nothing more feared in the South than one of those lynch mobs, which was invariably protected by the sheriff and his deputies when they weren't part of the mob themselves. Okay, when they weren't, when the sheriffs and the deputies were not part of the mob themselves. For every courageous black man willing to speak out against the circumstances we faced, hundreds of white men were willing and able to make sure he paid the ultimate price. All right, so uh, check out that article from uh, Washington Post. And uh, News1.com has an article also from this morning. Uh, Emmett Till's cousin who saw him last die, Simeon Wright, wrote about the events surrounding the kidnapping and vicious murder of Emmett Till in 1965. Um, And they also cite the article from um, the Washington Post, it looks like as well, here also. Okay, so ABC Channel 7 Chicago tweeted about this uh, yesterday evening, yesterday night, September 4th at 9.45 p.m. Simeon Wright cousin uh, with, uh, uh, Simeon Wright cousin with Emmett Till, night of lynching dead at uh, age 74. And um, there was a, uh, in the article from the, from news1.com, there's a tweet from Leo Glaze, Leo Glaze, and it has a uh, newspaper clipping uh, from uh, September 24th, 1955, and this was about the trial of the two men who killed Emmett Till. Two Two Mississippians acquitted in slaying of Chicago Negro, jurors out only 67 minutes. Two Mississippians acquitted in slaying of Chicago Negro jurors out only 67 minutes. All right. Okay. Uh, call on the 310 area code. If you have a question or comment, call back in. I was about to come to you. Call on the 310 area code. If you have a question or comment, call back in. Uh, call in numbers 914 338 1375-914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. All right. All right. So I want to go to this um, next story here uh, dealing with uh, some of the history of Labor Day. Okay. We'll go to this here in just a minute. And let's see here. Um, also want to let you know that I, I teach an online course um, on Friday, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school, 
understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. This is a 12-hour, six-week online course that I teach. All the sessions are recorded. We do it live. All the sessions are recorded. So as soon as you register, you can watch sessions one through four. Session five is this Friday, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. We deal with thousands of years of history. It's a 12-hour, six-week online course. It's only $40 for the entire course. And also, as soon as you register, there's about 20 hours of bonus content. We just posted the link there. It says register here. And uh, you can also go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com as well. Okay. All right. So um, Labor Day has come and gone. You know, Labor Day was yesterday, September 4th, 2017. And for a lot of people, Labor Day marks uh, the end of summer, even though the official end of summer doesn't occur till uh, September 20th uh, through September 22nd which is known as the uh, autumnal equinox, okay? Um, that marks the first day of um, fall, okay? And it either occurs September 20th, September 21st, or September 22nd, depending upon uh, the year. And it deals with astronomy. But for a lot of people, uh, Labor Day marks the unofficial end of summer, and a lot of school children go back to school uh, the day after Labor Day, okay? And it occurs the first uh, Monday in uh, September, okay? Um, and it has been, Labor Day has been observed as a federal holiday since uh, 1894, okay? Since 1894, it has been observed as a federal holiday. And on Labor Day, you'll have um, Labor Day parades, You'll have Labor Day parades, you'll have um, uh, cookouts, parties, athletic events, things like this. But a lot of people don't know the history of Labor Day, and they don't know the African-American roots of Labor Day also, okay? So Labor Day is an annual celebration of workers and their achievements, Uh and this originated during one of American labor's uh, 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 and Labor Day originated during one of American labor history's most dismal chapters. In the late 1800s, at the height of the Industrial Revolution in the United States, the average worker worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in order to just scratch out a basic living. Despite restrictions in some states. Children as young as five or six years old toiled in uh, mills and factories and mines like coal mines, things like this across the country, earning a fraction of what adults made, what, what their adult uh, counterparts made. Now, people of all ages, particularly the very poor and recent immigrants, often faced extremely unsafe working conditions with insufficient access to fresh air sanitary facilities, and breaks, lunch breaks, um, just a break, bathroom breaks, things like this, right? So this is prior to the labor unions being able to get the proper contracts, the proper working conditions, things like this, right? So as manufacturing increasingly supplanted agriculture, as you have a transition from a manufacturer, as you have a transition from an agricultural basis in the U.S. to 
a uh, manufacturing basis in the U.S. Um, you have more and more people working in these plants, and you have a greater need for um, you have a greater need for work regulations and a greater need for labor unions also. So as manufacturing increasingly uh, supplanted agriculture, as the wellspring of American employment, labor unions, which had first appeared in the late 18th century, the late 1700s, grew more prominent and vocal, okay? They began organizing strikes and rallies to, um, to protest. They began uh, organizing strikes and rallies to protest uh, poor work conditions and compel employers to renegotiate hours and pay. Many of these uh, events turned violent during this period of time, including the infamous Haymarket Riot of 1886, in which several Chicago policemen and workers were killed. All right. Okay. Uh, let me check something here on Facebook. All right. Just want to check that. Okay. Good. So you have the Haymarket Riot of 1886, and the labor unions, they have a bloody history as well, because oftentimes they will be attacked by the henchmen of various corporations, of various factories. Um, so in the Haymarket Riot of 1886, you had several Chicago policemen and workers who were killed. Others gave uh, other um, uh, protests are going to give rise to longstanding traditions. Um uh, or strikes, I should, uh, I should say, other um, uh, strikes and rallies and protests are going to give rise to longstanding traditions. Uh, on September 5th, 1882, 10,000 workers took unpaid time off to march from City Hall to Union Square in New York City, holding the first Labor Day parade in U.S. history. So the first Labor Day parade in U.S. history goes back to September 5th, 1882, okay, uh, in New York City. So the idea of a working man's holiday or a working man's holiday celebrated on the first Monday in September caught on in other industrial cities across the country. And many states passed legislation recognizing um, this um, holiday or this celebration, this working man's holiday. All right. So the 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 um, first Labor Day parade in U.S. history occurred September 5th, 1882, all right? So that was, um, I'm not sure, but that was probably a Monday. So uh, Congress did not legalize the holiday until 12 years later when a watershed moment in American labor history brought workers' rights squarely into the public's view. On May 11th, 1894, Employees of the Pullman Palace Car Company in Chicago, the, and so this is the uh, these, this is the Pullman Car Company, named after George Pullman. Okay, um, employees of the Pullman Palace Car Company in Chicago went on strike to protest wage cuts and the firing of union representatives. On June 26, the American Railroad Union, led by Eugene V. Debs. Uh, D-E-B-S, called for a boycott of all Pullman railway cars crippling railroad traffic nationwide. 
To break the stripe, the federal government dispatched troops to Chicago, unleashing a wave of riots that resulted in the deaths of more than a dozen workers. In the wake of this massive unrest and in an attempt to repair ties with American workers, Congress passed an act making Labor Day a legal holiday in the District of Columbia and the, ter- and, um, the territories. More than a century later, more than a century later, the true founder of Labor Day has yet to be identified. Okay, so we still don't know who was the real founder of uh, Labor Day. When we look at the uh, so this article comes from history.com, history.com, the official uh, website of the History Channel. Uh, uh, they have an article Labor Day. All right, and time.com, Time Magazine's website. They have an article from September 7th, 2015, how a bloody railroad strike paved the way for Labor Day, how a bloody railroad strike paved the way for Labor Day. So it was um, it's believed that the passing of Labor Day as a federal holiday in 1894 was sort of a peace offering from President Grover Cleveland, who was the president at the time this was taking place uh, for the killing of a dozen or more striking railway workers. All right. So this so this strike began uh, as the article from um, uh, the history dot com talked about. The strike began May 11th, 1894, when you had employees of the Pullman Palace Car Company in Chicago. They're going to go on strike. And then on June 26th, you had um, employees from the American Railroad Union who are going to go on strike uh, as well in solidarity with the strikers of the, uh, of the Pullman Palace Car Company. So the strike began as unrest in the Illinois town founded by George Pullman, creator of the railroad sleeping car. Uh, the town just outside Chicago had been built as a utopian home of Pullman's workers. So he built this town for his workers. Okay, this town outside of the city, right outside the city of Chicago. He built this town for his workers. And this is where you get the Pullman Porters from. They're going to work for George Pullman and the Pullman Palace Car Company. So um, he, he builds this town for his workers, but the Utopia was designed to serve George Pullman above all order, above all others. Its residents all, all worked for the Pullman Company. Their paychecks drawn from uh, the Pullman Bank and their rent set by George Pullman deducted automatically from their weekly paychecks. And uh, Time Magazine cites an article from PBS.org about this. They have a good article there about Labor Day and the Pullman strike and the Pullman porters uh, entitled The Origins of Labor Day from PBS.org. Uh, it's actually PBS NewsHour in pbs.org website, The Origins of Labor Day, okay? So, um, all right, so as we continue, um, so George Pullman's um, employees are going to go on strike because he announced uh, pay cuts, all right? From 1880 to 1893, all seemed well in Pullman Town, 
in 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 uh, Pullman Town, the town that he founded, George Pullman founded for his workers to live, until an economic depression prompted George Pullman to cut employees' wages, even though their rents remain the same. Okay, so you're cutting wages of employees, but their rents remain the same. So the workers walked out in solidarity. Members of the American Railway Union, okay, founded by uh, Eugene V. Debs, okay, who who, uh, it appears was a socialist, they took up the cause and the 150,000 members of the American Railway Union, they went on strike also and they refused to work on trains carrying uh, the Pullman cars, prompting a nationwide transportation nightmare. So you have um, 150,000 members of the American Railway Union that refuse to work on uh, trains carrying the Pullman cars. All right. So this is a huge strike. It causes a huge uh, transportation gridlock. So the Atlantic.com reported that it was according that, that it was America's first true nationwide strike and a major milestone for the labor movement. But it did not end well for anyone. President Grover Cleveland, under pressure from the railroad industry and the U.S. Postal Service, whose mail trains had ground to a halt, declared the strike a federal crime and sent troops in to break up the strike. So uh, David Ray uh, Papke, P-A-P-K-E, the author of The Pullman Case, uh, describes the riot and arson that ensued and was, and, and was suppressed. While death counts vary from, from, from uh, sources, Time Magazine called it, quote, one of the bloodiest uh, strikes in U.S. history, one of the bloodiest strikes in U.S. history, Okay. While the strike came to an abrupt halt, uh, to an abrupt end, and Pullman employees promised never again to unionize, Grover Cleveland's popularity suffered, especially among the labor movement's working class core. Making Labor Day a national holiday was President Grover Cleveland's election year attempt at an olive branch, although it didn't succeed in winning him another term. Over time, however, as tensions eased between unions and the establishment, the holiday came to have less to do with labor leaders than with retail figures. So it became more commercialized. The holiday had less to do with labor leaders than it did with retail figures, uh, department store sales, different things like this, okay? While the day still honors the working man, Time Magazine noted in 1962, it has evolved over the years into a much more significant date in the life of the American consumer. No seasonal divide so sharply separates the living and buying patterns of men, women, and children across the land. All right. So you can check out that article from uh, Time Magazine, time.com, how a bloody railroad strike paved the way for Labor Day, high bloody railroad strike paved the way for Labor Day. Okay. Um, so to this day, we still don't know who actually created 
Labor Day. Who gets the credit? Many credit P.J. McGuire, co-founder of the American Federation of Labor, AFL. P.J. McGuire, while others have suggested that Matthew McGuire, um, last name spelled differently, so appears no relation, a secretary of the Central Labor Union, first proposed the holiday. Labor Day is still celebrated in cities and towns uh, across the United States with parades, uh, picnics, barbecues, fireworks, displays, etc. Okay, for many Americans, particularly children and young adults, it represents the end of summer, summer, and the start back to school. So Labor Day also uh, is celebrated by a lot of parents because they know the next day their children are going back to school and they'll get their houses back. You know, they'll get their houses back. We see on the Cosby Show them celebrating the first day of school and and the children have to get out the house. Now, when we look at the strike from the uh, Pullman workers, okay, the employees of the Pullman Palace Car Company, right, the African-American workers were not allowed to strike because they were not allowed to join the union, okay? So blackden.com has an article about this. Um, uh, We did it, they hit it, celebrating the role Pullman Porters played in the creation of the Labor Day holiday. We did it, they hit it, celebrating the role Pullman Porters played in the creation of the Labor Labor Day holiday. Then also the root.com uh, had an article. So um, that was that was from September 4th, 2017. And then um, also the root.com had an article, uh, America's Racist History of Labor, America's Racist History of Labor. And um, this deals with um, the Pullman, uh, the Pullman Porters. It deals with the uh, strike in uh, 1886. Okay. Uh, the strike in uh, 1886 that they were not allowed to uh, participate in also, okay? I'm sorry, 1894. Uh, The Pullman Palace Car Company strike in 1894, all right? Uh, There's a video from uh, the root.com. I want to go to this video. Now, I need to test the... uh, I need to test the audio here for just a minute to make sure people on Blog Talk can... uh, hear it also so you just have to bear with me while i test this as well because i'm trying to identify a problem with some of the audio clips not playing properly on uh blog talk so let me try this and uh, i need to check and make sure you can hear on uh, facebook as well Slaves were legally freed in 1865. Black folks had a hell of a time finding employment, joining unions, and eventually the labor movement. Because yeah, the history of labor in America is racist as fools. Labor Day became a federal holiday in 1894. Labor Day is a time to recognize the American labor movement. You know, the contributions that workers have made.
All right. So that was um that was from the root dot com. Check out the article from um check out the article from the root uh, America's racist history of labor. America's racist history of uh labor. All right. And even if you read um how white folks got so rich, the untold story of American white supremacy. How white folks got so rich, the untold story of American white supremacy by um which is a book put out by the Nation of Islam Research Group. They talk about the um labor unions in there, especially after slavery ends. Okay. So if we look at um this article here from um uh blackden.com, okay. And once again, if you have a question or comment, uh give us a call 914-338-1375. Just the call in number if you have a question or comment. And just just one minute here. I need to grab a book also. Okay, I'm back. All right, so I wanted to grab this book here. So this is the um, this is the second edition of How White Folks Got So Rich: The Untold Story of American White Supremacy. This is put out by the Nation of Islam Research Group. Okay, so excellent book, How White Folks Got So Rich: The Untold Story of American White Supremacy. Check this out. You can go to noirg.org, noirg.org. That's the Nation of Islam Research Group's uh, website. Yeah, I think you could probably find it at finalcall.com. They have the uh, third edition out now. I have to order that. I think it's $10. They have the third edition out. Uh, this is the second edition. Second edition. This came out. Uh, this was $8. This came out in 2014, the second edition. And this is, um, um, what's his name? Uh, Sterling. Um who was the owner of the um, owner of the Clippers, uh, Donald Sterling. This is Donald Sterling on the cover. How White Folks Got So Rich, The Untold Story of American White Supremacy. This is a powerful, powerful book right here. Okay, so um, let's continue. Okay, so Shamika on Facebook said this is so informative, uh, knowledge and powers. Carrie said, Hotep, brother. My Hotep, how you doing, Carrie? All right. If you like this type of information, you'll definitely like the online course that I teach, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School. That's a 12-hour, six-week online course that I, that I teach. We deal with thousands of years of history. Uh, we deal with uh, events leading up to the Transatlantic Slave Trade. Uh, we do it normally on Friday, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All the sessions are recorded. You can go back and watch it over and over again. So anything you miss, you can go back and watch it. As soon as you register, you can watch sessions, uh, the first four sessions. Session number five is this Friday, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. There's also about 20 hours of bonus content you can watch. Uh, so we just posted the link there. It says register here. It's only $40 for the uh, course. So it's going to blow you away. If you like this type of information, this type of history, the course will blow you away. And then also you can uh, visit AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All of my DVD lectures are there also at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com as well. Okay, so that helps to support the African History Network, helps us keep broadcasting, stay on the air, 
uh, pay the bills, keep doing the research as well. Okay. All right. So um, the article from blackden.com, really good article, giving more insight into um, some of the African-American roots of Labor Day that are often overlooked when we see information about Labor Day parades, the celebrations of uh, Labor Day like we saw yesterday, okay? So um, in the article, it talks about how many working people across the United States are enjoying a three-day weekend thanks to Labor Day, but many sadly... um, uh, it has become more of a, uh, but but sadly has become more of a retail holiday and a mark of the end of summer. Okay, even though even those who do honor workers and unions rarely explore the historical links between the Pullman strike of 1894 and the Black Pullman porters who could not strike, okay, because they were not allowed in a whites-only union. All right, so in 1867. Chicago industrialist George Pullman revolutionized rail rail travel with his famous Pullman cars. And there was a, there was a documentary shown on PBS. I think it was last year. Uh, I think it was 2016 during February during African American History Month about the Pullman porters. Okay, uh, these African American men who worked on George George Pullman's cars and how they got to travel around the country. They were mistreated, but still, this was. Based upon the conditions at that time, this was one of the best jobs you can have, okay, which wasn't saying a whole lot, but this was one of the best jobs you can have. So the um, – so George – so uh, when George Pullman released the uh, – created the Pullman car, uh, and um, the Pullman car was leased to a railroad – it, it was equipped with highly trained porters to serve the travelers. The cars were staffed with, with recently freed slaves, okay, because he, um, he starts this railroad company in 1867, okay? 1867, he starts this railroad company. Uh, I'm, he starts the Pullman, Par- Pullman Palace Car Company, I should say, 1867. And the uh, Pullman cars were staffed with recently freed slaves, whom George Pullman judged to be skilled in service and willing to work for low wages, skilled in service and willing to work for low wages. So soon the Pullman Rail Company, uh, the Pullman Rail Car Company, uh, was the largest employer of uh, African-Americans in the country, with the greatest concentration of Pullman uh, porters living on Chicago's south, uh, south side. Labor Day was nationally uh, established after the Pullman strike in 1894, okay, when uh, uh, President Grover Cleveland sought to win political points by honoring dissatisfied railroad workers. This strike did, uh, did not include uh, the Pullman porters or conductors on trains, but for the, uh, the African American Pullman porters, racism fueled uh, part of the workers' dissatisfaction and was never addressed. So you've always had in the unions, you've always had these uh, these racial tensions in the unions also, because a lot of labor unions were founded right after slavery ended, and they were founded to keep African Americans out of the unions and to protect jobs for white men. So the National Labor Union 
was founded in uh, 1866, the year after slavery ends. You're going to have other labor unions that are founded after, after slavery ends. And there were at least 262 skills, trades, and crafts that African people had in this country from, um, 18, from 1619 to 1865. And these skilled trades and crafts are going to be used to enrich America, enrich the slave owners, and build this country. So after slavery ends and you have 4 million enslaved Africans who are free, okay, probably about 2 million adults of them, probably about 2 million of them or so adults. Now they can compete for these jobs that they were doing for free. So you're going to have these labor unions created and they have contracts with different industries saying that you can only hire white men that belong to these unions to lock African-Americans out because they knew our skill levels were as good as theirs in many cases, even better because we had been doing the jobs. So then um, from 1866 to 1880, you have about 12 million European immigrants that come to this country and a lot of jobs they got, we should have gotten because we were already here and we had been doing those jobs for hundreds of years. So you had discrimination you had discrimination taking place there. But these European immigrants, these immigrants, mainly European immigrants, coming to this country, they're going to be exploited as well. Okay? They're going to come here. They're going to be exploited by these corporations, pay low wages, things like this also. So we should be against exploitation of any people, not saying it's all right to exploit Hispanics as long as African-Americans are employed. We should be against exploitation against anybody. Because if they do it to them today, they'll do it to you tomorrow. So, um, you had the greatest concentration of Pullman porters living in Chicago's South Side. You're going to have George Pullman, who creates a town for his employees right outside of Chicago also. Okay. Now, um, and the the uh, Pullman porters, the African-American Pullman porters did not strike, okay? They were not allowed to join the union. And the dissatisfaction that they had, their grievances, when it came to the racism that existed and their mistreatment was never addressed. So in their, in their home neighborhoods, to be a Pullman porter was considered a prestigious position. The job offered a steady income, an opportunity to travel across America, and a life largely free of heavy physical labor, rare, which was rare for African Americans at that time, because a lot of them were dealing with Jim Crow, 1894, they're dealing with Jim Crow laws. Oh, well, this is, they're dealing with Jim Crow laws, but Jim Crow laws are going to be largely cemented because of Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, the Supreme Court case. But you're going to have um, uh, sharecropping taking place. So a lot of African Americans were still in agriculture. This is before um, World War One, which starts in 1914. But 1915 starts the Great Migration, and the Great Migration is from 1915 to 1960. And you're going to have five million African Americans that move from the north. They move from the south up north and out west because they're going to work in factories. They're going to work in auto plants. We know that um, it's uh, uh, 1908 that uh, Henry Ford starts making um, 
the first uh, Model T's, okay, this first car is 1908. So you're going to have African Americans leaving a largely agricultural basis, going to work up north and out west, going to work in factories, looking for a better way of life, looking to own homes, looking for equal protection under the law, looking for better wages, escaping white supremacists and white races, things like this in the South. Okay, so the Pullman Porter position was considered a very prestigious position in African American neighborhoods because of these, because of a lot of these factors. And they're Pullman Porters before the Great Migration starts. Okay, because 1894 is before the Great Migration. So, uh, historian uh, Timuel Black, Timuel Black, stated, "Quote: They were good looking." clean and immaculate in their dress. Their style was quite manly. Their language was uh, very carefully crafted so that they had a sense of intelligence about them. They were good role models for young men. But the Pullman porters were also mistreated. They were underpaid. They were overworked and subjected to countless indignities on the job. Okay, subjected to countless indignities on the job. All right. And let me pull this up here on the screen. Once again, the call in number is 914-338-1375. 914-338-1375 is the call in number if you have a question or comment. Press the number one key to put you in queue so we can bring you on the air. You can also call that number to listen to the listen to the show. 914 338 1375. Okay. And um, let me try to um, bring this article up here on the screen as well. So we're dealing with the African American roots of um, Labor Day also that are not often uh, talked about. Okay. And I wonder why. Very interesting there. So the poor reporters were uh, underpaid, even though they had steady income, they were underpaid, mistreated, overworked, and subjected to countless indignities on the job. Um, Greg, Greg Leroy, or Greg Leroy, who is a former Pullman porter and a historian, he said, Quote, a Pullman porter was really kind of a glorified hotel maid and bellhop in what Pullman called a hotel on wheels. George Pullman referred to it as a hotel on wheels. Okay, so um, so that was Greg Leroy. He went on to say that the Pullman company just thought of the Pullman porters as a piece of equipment, just like another button on a panel, uh, the same as a light switch or a fan switch. So they were very undervalued, okay? But at the time, for a lot of them, this was a, a good job. So George Pullman demanded four, 400 hours a month or 11,000 miles, sometimes as much as 20 hours at a stretch. And paid and, and the job paid ridiculously low wages. So in 1926, an average of $810 per year is what that job paid. 
an average of $810 per year in 1926, which in today's uh, economy is the equivalent to $7,500 a year. So it was extremely low wages, okay? Uh, Greg Leroy went on to say it did not pay a livable wage, but they made a living with the tips that they got because the salary was nothing, end quote. Uh, actually, this was Lynn Hughes, uh, Lynn Hughes, who said this of the A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. Okay, Lynn Hughes made this statement. Um, the A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. Uh, the company expected, the Pullman Car Company, expected its, its employees to pay for their own meals, supply their own uniforms and shoe polish, and allow them only short naps on, coach, on, on, on couches in the smoking car. Disgruntled porters began to question their situation and decided to take on the enormously powerful uh, Pullman Car Company. In 1925, the African-American Pullman porters formed a union called the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. The Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. This marked the beginning of a 12-year struggle for dignity between working conditions and fair pay. Its leaders were uh, charismatic uh, African-American activists, A. Philip Randolph and former uh, porter, former former Pullman Porter Milton Webster, who was head of the Chicago Union Local. Their eventual triumph marked the first time in American American history that an African-American union forced a powerful corporation to the negotiating table. It was a significant step forward for African-American equality. The union members learned how to organize and negotiate Okay, of the uh, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, they uh, learn how to uh, how to unionize, how to organize and negotiate. They discovered that even in a time of great prejudice in America, African-Americans could effect change if they stood together and persevered. Let me repeat this. This is in this is in 1925. These men discovered that even in a time of great prejudice in America, that African-Americans could affect change if they stood together and persevered. They would later, they would later apply these techniques to the civil rights movement. So when you look at the civil rights movement that starts with many people say with December 5th, 1955 with the Montgomery bus boycott, but the seeds of the civil rights movement were planted decades before that. And we could look at one of those seeds being the organization of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and the strike that these men are going to go on in 1925. And there was a movie made called uh, 10,000 Men Named George. I think it was the name of the movie. Uh, uh, 10,000 Men Named George about the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and E. Philip Randolph and the Union and the strike. Okay, uh, I think it was Andre Brower um, who um, played the part of A. Philip Randolph uh, in that film. Okay, Sonia Weaver on Facebook said, every time I listen to you, you have something that keeps me listening. Okay, <laughs> all right. All right. 
say, hey, you can give us a call, 914. We're live. We're broadcasting on uh, Blog Talk Radio. You can give us a call, 914-338-1375. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. Yolanda on Facebook said, thank you so much for giving us this information on how to play the game. Okay, we shared that comment also. Uh, Rodney said, rest in power. I think that's to Simeon Wright, the cousin of Emmett Till, who passed away uh, Monday, September 4th, 2017, at the age of 74 from uh, bone cancer. Okay, Simeon Wright. Um, so... And once again, if you like this type of information, uh, register for the online course that I teach. You can register now. Uh, we have the link posted here. It says register here. We'll post it again. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. We deal with a lot of this type of information in the course. We deal with thousands of years of history. It's on demand, so you can um, watch it. Uh, as soon as you register, you can watch the first four sessions. And um, you can, you'll be ready for session number five this Friday. We do it live it's Friday, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All the sessions are recorded. You can go back and watch it over and over again. It's only $40 for the course. And also there's 20 hours of bonus content also, okay? All right. So uh, when we look at the uh, the wage conditions and the conditions these uh, – African-American men were working under uh, and they were able to scra scrape out of life, get some type of decent housing for, um, for their families also um, as well. Um, let me try to find this just a second here. Okay. And you listen to the African History Network show right here on uh, the Blog Talk Radio Network, and we're broadcasting on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network. So share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in also. All right, here. Um, okay, let's continue. Um, you got to flip back over. I have a bunch of tabs open, so you have to bear with me here. Okay. He posted the link again there. All right. And the also the um, Reclaiming the African Mind bundle pack, which was on sale for $25. Uh, regularly, I think it's like regularly $80. That's on sale for a little while longer few more hours as at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com also because I forgot to change the price back to $50. So we'll let that stay for today. Um, okay, let's continue here. Okay, so they're going to have, the, the, the union members are going to have a strike and they're going to win. And a strike is another form of economic withdrawal strategies as well. A work strike is another form of economic withdrawal strategies also. Okay. So that's a little known part of uh, history. Uh, check out this article from blackden.com. We did it. They hit it celebrating the role Pullman Porters played in the celebration, in the creation of the Labor Day holiday, celebrating, cre celebrating the role 
Pullman porters played in the creation of the Labor Day holiday. And when you look at um, the celebrations that took place yesterday for Memorial Day, that wasn't talked about. The Pullman porters. That's not talked about at all. Um, very quickly here, when we look at uh, labor unions, I, I want to go to um, um, how white folks got so rich, the untold story of American white supremacy. How white folks got so rich, the untold story of American white supremacy. Okay. And they talk about labor unions uh, here in the book. They talk about labor unions, racial cleansing of American labor. Okay. Labor unions, racial cleansing of American labor. The labor union movement of the late 1800s has arguably done more to destroy black progress than any other known action of white people. Yet it is almost totally invisible in the written histories of blacks in America. Okay. Now, I want to make this very clear. I'm not against labor unions. I'm against labor unions discriminating against African Americans and against people in general, against non-Europeans in general, against women. I'm not against labor unions. I'm against racism and white supremacy in the labor unions. So the union, so this is page 28 of how white folks got so rich, the untold story of American white supremacy. Um, the union movement was specifically designed to remove blacks from their jobs in the skilled trades, which they dominated, uh, number one, and number two, to instill those jobs, uh, to, in, to install in those jobs European immigrants who were flooding into America by the millions. Scholars attribute the rapid success of immigrant groups directly to the advantages they received through their membership in the American trade unions, okay? This is something that's not talked about, how they were given these jobs, these European immigrants coming to this country were given these jobs at the expense of African-Americans who were already here, who had been doing the jobs for free, and how we were locked out of these labor unions. So white historians have misrepresented um, African-Americans in slavery as being more field hands or, mo or uh, as being mere field hands but African-Americans held a virtual monopoly on almost all uh, skilled and unskilled labor. They were the engineers, the builders, uh, shipbuilders, tailors, shoemakers, carpenters, stonemasons, uh, brick masons, bricklayers, weavers, furniture uh, makers, cabinet makers, plumbers, painters, sailors, boat makers, carriage makers, blacksmiths, coppersmiths, printers, and every other type of skilled artisan. There were at least 262 skills, trades, and crafts that African people had in this country from 1619 to 1865, okay? This, we, we have to understand this history. And a people's history teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past in the present and the future. A people's history teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past in the present and the future. Because uh, things happen in cycles, and history happens in cycles. Okay, so let's continue here. 
uh, white historians have misrepresented uh, African Americans as field hands in slavery, and uh, you said that all we did was pick the cotton or cook the master's food or plant the crops, things like this. That's not true. We did a lot more than that. Southern writer Thomas Nelson Page said that after slavery, the black man was without a rival uh, in the in the field in the entire field uh, of industrial labor throughout the South. The black man was with, without a rival in the entire um, field of industrial labor throughout the South. Ninety five percent of all industrial work of the southern states was in his hand. Ninety five percent of all the industrial work of the southern states was in his hand and he was fully competent to do it. Every adult was either a skilled laborer or a trained mechanic. Every adult was either a skilled laborer or a trained mechanic. Indeed, it was once said that if a white man were seen in public doing any form of skilled labor, he would draw a crowd of gawking onlookers. White immigrant laborers White immigrant laborers could not compete with the black worker, so the unions came in to rescue them. The most powerful union leader in America was Samuel Gompers, G-O-M-P-E-R-S, Samuel Gompers, who led the American Federation of Labor, the AFL. He He led the American Federation of Labor in their formative stages. Under Samuel Gompers, the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, systematically and violently carried out an occupational eviction of African-American workers. Samuel Gompers wrote, quote, Caucasian civilization will serve notice to blacks that its uplifting process is not to be interfered with in any way. Caucasian civilization will serve notice to blacks that its uplifting process is not to be interfered with in any way. A common union expression, a common union expression was, quote, never let a nigger pick up a tool, end quote. Never let a nigger pick up a tool, end quote. When you study Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass talked about the uh, racism that was going on with the uh, with the labor unions also. Frederick Douglass talked about this as well. Um, it's one of the articles I have on Frederick Douglass. Check check out Frederick Douglass at blackpass.org. Uh, I think it may be in that article. I'm trying to look because I have a file on Frederick Douglass. So just trying to look for my articles. This is my articles on Emmett Till. Uh, this is Martin Delaney, John H. Johnson, Frederick Douglass. Here we go. All right. So, how's everybody doing today? Everybody all right? Got Angela checking in. Um. So we're live. This is uh, afternoon edition of the African History Network show. Wanted to broadcast last night around nine o'clock. Lay down to take a nap at seven thirty. Had my alarm clock set, 
for 8.30 and 8.45, and I slept through the alarms. I remember, I remember hitting the snooze button. I slept through the alarms. When I woke up, it was midnight. And I got up with the attention of broadcasting at midnight, 12.30, 1 o'clock, 1 a.m. But I was doing some work and pulling together information, and I said, I'm just going to broadcast tomorrow. I'm going to go to bed, broadcast tomorrow. I was tired. Um, oh, the article from BlackPath.org on Frederick Douglass. Check it out. BlackPath.org. I made my notations there also. Made my notations. BlackPath.org on Frederick Douglass. Uh, Frederick Douglass said, uh, okay, he challenged segregated Sabbaths. He spoke out against Northern race prejudice as well as Southern slavery. Frederick Douglass challenged segregated Sabbaths, either white or black, and criticized the race prejudice of immigrant labor organizations, which excluded black freemen. Frederick Douglass once remarked that his son could more easily become an apprentice in a Boston law firm than in any working man's organization. Frederick Douglass once remarked that his son could more easily become an apprentice in a Boston law firm than in any working man's organization. Okay. Even while realizing this fact, Frederick Douglass became a strong advocate of industrial trade school education for the black working man. All right. So this is a long history and this deals with this, the African-Americans being locked out of the unions early on. Okay. Especially after slavery ends late 1800s, early 1900s being locked out of these unions largely deals with the wealth gap that we see today where the median uh, uh, household net worth, of a white family is $141,900 as of, I think it was 2014 in the median household net worth of an African-American family is $11,000. Okay. You have to understand how history ties into these gaps. So you're dealing with public policies, you're dealing with labor unions and the wealth gap is how uh, the acts of the past show up in the present. The wealth gap is one of the ways how acts of the past and racism of the past shows up in history today and affects African Americans on a daily basis. Okay. So this is, this is extremely, extremely important. All right. All right. So yeah, you can register for the online course, Andrea, we just got your registration here. Uh, we have the link posted there. Um, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. As soon as you register, you can watch the first four sessions. We have 20 hours of bonus content, and you'll be ready for class this Friday, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we do the sessions on Fridays, okay? Um, and we post. We have the link posted there. It says register here. If you need me to post the link again, let me know. I'll post it again so you can register for the class. Okay, so Samuel Gompers. So this... This piece of history dealing with the labor unions, for the most part, did not come up yesterday in all the celebrations about the labor unions. Once again, I'm not against labor unions. I'm against white supremacy and racism in the labor unions. 
I'm against the racism against African-Americans in the labor unions and that racism historically. I'm not against labor unions, okay? But this type of information, for the most part, did not come up yesterday. So by the turn of the century, okay, by the turn of the uh, 20th century, the black man who was once the dominant uh, worker in America was locked in the lowest wage labor or was totally uh, jobless, forcing African-American women into the job market as farm workers, factory workers, and domestics in white homes. So this is extremely important because white men who were protected by the unions and their labor was protected by unions, and even when African-American men could somehow get into these unions, they got the lowest wage paying jobs, okay? They got the lowest wage paying jobs. So because white men could have higher pay, this allowed white women, many of them, to to be able to stay at home and not have to work. But with African-American men, because many of them could not get into the labor unions or could not get these jobs, and when they did, they were low-wage paying jobs, this meant that African-American women could not, in many cases, be stay-at-home moms and had to go out and work also. Okay, so by the turn of the century, so they're talking about the 20th century, early 1900s, the black man who was once the the prominent worker in America was locked in the lowest wage labor or was totally jobless, forcing African-American women into the job market as farmers, factory workers, and domestic in white homes. The higher wages of the unionized white male relieved white women of hard labor and provided them with the leisure time and financing for the development of art, literature, education, and culture. Union leaders staffed the licensing and professional certification boards and funneled all employment to Caucasian laborers while denying licenses and permits to black-skilled craftsmen. Further pushing African-American men back into dead-end, low-wage work under white authority. So it wasn't just the labor unions. It wasn't just the hiring practices. But you also had union leaders who staffed the licensing and professional certification boards, and they directed all employment to white workers while denying licenses and permits to African-American skilled craftsmen. And these are some of the same people who were telling black people to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. So AFL-CIO's George Meany, M-E-A-N-Y, George Meany, who was president from 1955 to 1979, once remarked, quote, it never occurred to me to have niggers in the union. Quote, unquote, it never occurred to me to have niggers in the union. His words, not mine. By 1967, African-Americans comprised just 8% of construction trades unionists and the plumbing, sheet metal, electrical, asbestos, and elevator trades had only 1,400 African-American members out of a total membership of 330,000. By 1967, that's... When you look at, when you go back and look at the 67 rebellions that took place, Detroit, Newark, New Jersey, 
things like this. Buffalo, New York. There were 159 violent uprisings in this country. And if you um, participated in the online course, the online lecture I did this past, what was it, Saturday, Sunday? Saturday. African-American resistance in the era of Donald Trump, voter suppression, reparations, and how elections have consequences. African-American resistance in the era of Donald Trump, voter suppression, reparations, and how elections have consequences. Okay, and I have that lecture on DVDs. Um, there are actually three presentations on that DVD. It's at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We also have it in a bundle pack. Um, the bundle pack's on sale for a little while longer for $25. Let's see here. Where is that one? The um, We'll find that bundle pack. Uh, Reclaiming the African Mind bundle pack. Okay. So um, when you look at the rebellions that took place uh, from 64 to 67, Okay, but specifically in 1967, this brings about uh, the formation of the Kerner Commission, the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorder, the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorder. Okay, uh, more commonly known as the Kerner Commission. It was uh, organized um, July 28, 1967. Okay, this was the day after the Detroit Rebellion ended. So the Detroit Rebellion was from Detroit from July 23rd. To July 27th, 1967. Okay. And then the next day, President Johnson announces the formation of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorder. And this was designed to look at the rebellions and what was causing them, why they were happening, and what could be done to prevent them, what, what, need, what needed to happen. Okay. Um, so we just posted the link here. That's to the bundle pack. That's on sale, $25 right now. Um, Reclaiming the African Mind bundle pack. This is a six-DVD set for me uh, from Michael M. Hotel. All right. We're going to go to the phone lines in just a minute. Call in 310 area code. Hold the line. Once again, if you have a question or comment, call us 914-338-1375. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. Okay. Uh, 914 914- Three three eight thirteen seventy five, uh, and press the number one key uh, when you call in to put you in queue so we could bring you on the air. All right, AFL CIOs, uh, it's American Federation of Labor CIOs. Uh, George Meany, M E A N Y, who is the president from nineteen fifty five to nineteen seventy six, once remarked, "Quote: It never occurred to me to have n words in the union." By 1967, African-Americans comprised just 8% of construction trade unionists and the plumbing, sheet metal, electrical, uh, asbestos, and elevator trades had only 1,400 black members out of a membership of 330,000. Tom Watson, who was a Southern politician, they have a quote hear from him on page 31 so I'll share this with you we southern whites are the best friends of the negro uh, we southern whites are the best friends the negro has got but we know what he really is we know where he would go to if our sustaining hand our constant pattern 
and example were, were not ever present, coercing him our way. All right, so check this out. How white folks got so rich, the untold story of American white supremacy, Nation of Islam Research Group. Okay, let's go to the phone line. Once again, the call-in number is area code 914-338-1375, 914-338-1375. Uh, if you have a question or comment, press the number one key to put you on cue so we can bring you on the air. Okay, call in the 310 area code. Call in the 310 area No, I'm just listening. Okay. All right. Keep listening. Hello. Thanks for listening. Keep listening. Hello? Yeah, keep listening. Oh, okay. Thank you. No problem. All right. Okay, let's go to the six three oh area code. Call in the six three oh area code. Welcome to the African History Network show. Tell us your name, where you're calling from. I'm in Faith Scott and I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. From Chicago. Okay. Well, then what's yes. your first name? In Zafay. In Zafay. Yes. Go ahead. And what I want to say is, our people really need to know that all of this information, you are awesome. And if our young children knew this, we would have Mm -hmm. less gangs or no gangs at all because they've lost their sense of who they are. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate you. And I can go on, but I'm going to get um, (laughs) a lot of your. you're teaching, and I appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, sister, visit AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. That's our website. You can get all my, my DVD lectures, things like that there. And we have video clips, a lot of information there. And we have a recommended reading list of books also at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com as well. Okay. Well, how did you find out about the show today? Well, I just I was on Facebook, and uh, I just okay. kind of – yeah, but let me ask you this question. Uh, have Go you ahead. decided or um, considered getting something for our younger children, let's say eight through, starting at eight years old or seven or nine or ten years old? Uh, something like what? What are you referring to? Oh, the history, the information that you're sharing with us um, about African-Americans. Right. So they well, can have some pride um, in themselves. One thing, one thing they could do, uh, on our recommended reading list of books, um, we have a book. We, we don't sell books. We sell DVDs, but we have a recommended reading list of books, so you can get it from like your local African American book dealer or Amazon.com. Uh, on the list is a book called Classical Africa by Dr. Malefe Kete Asante, and that's that book is written for school children. Adults can read it; it has good information, but it's written for middle school children. Classical Great. Africa, and it deals with uh, West Africa. It deals with the Nile Valley region of Africa deals with ancient Egypt, Kush, things like this. Um, also at um, theblackhomeschool.com, theblackhomeschool.com, we post articles from them on a daily basis. They have a lot of good articles there about, about our children, positive things our children are doing. They have articles dealing with educating our children. Uh, also, theblackhomeschool.com, okay? Those are some, those yeah. are some resources check out i'm um, looking at getting we have the we have the cartoons afro man and the protectors of the book of knowledge because i'm okay. a distributor of that and those are educational cartoons for our children uh i'm looking at getting some more uh material for our children though also 
the blackhomeschool.com is a good like online website that has articles. But I'm looking at getting um, some other um, resources for our children as well. Okay. Thank you so much, and continue the work. I appreciate you. Okay, sister. All right, thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Okay, 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. I guess we'll be here for another 20 minutes. I plan to do two hours, but it's going on three. So, um, all right. I don't think I'm going to broadcast tonight, though. Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure. (laughs) All right. Okay, so that's dealing with some history of Labor Day. And uh, on Facebook, we've got Val. How you doing, Val? Uh, Francine said, that's why my dad started off at General Motors as a janitor. First, uh, they would not give him a suitable paying job because he was African-American later. He became an assembly worker. Um, the assemblers was white folks. Yeah. Okay. So let's continue here. And all right. So that battery died. All right. So the descendants of, um, let's go to this next story here. Descendants of enslaved um, Africans who were owned by the Cherokee Nation have been finally granted citizenship. Descendants who were uh, owned, uh, descendants of enslaved Africans owned by the Cherokee Nation have been finally granted citizenship, okay? This story comes from AtlantaBlackStar.com, AtlantaBlackStar.com from uh, September 1st, uh, 2017. So after a 40-year battle, uh, the descendants of enslaved uh, blacks who were once owned by the Cherokee Nation, uh, also known as Cherokee Freedmen, okay, also known as Cherokee Freedmen, um, have finally been granted tribal citizenship thanks to a federal court ruling out of Washington, D.C. this week, okay, or last week, we should say. Um, U.S. District U.S. District Judge Thomas F. Hogan U.S. District Judge Thomas F. Hogan ruled on Wednesday, August 30th, 2017, that Cherokee Freedmen had citizenship's rights, settling the long-standing dispute between the Freedmen and the second-largest tribe in the U.S. Okay. Now it's important to note that the um, It's important to note that the Cherokee also owned black slaves. So they were one of the, what's known as the five civilized tribes of Native Americans, the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians. And uh, they all own black slaves. Excuse me, they all own uh, black slaves. So, uh, U.S. District Judge Thomas F. Hogan wrote in this ruling, the Cherokee Nation can continue to define itself as it sees fit. The Cherokee Nation can continue to define itself as it sees fit. But, but it must do so equally and even-handedly with respect to Native Cherokees 
and the descendants of Cherokee freedmen. Their fates under the Cherokee Nation Constitution um, rise and fall equally and in tandem. Okay, their fates under the Cherokee Nation Constitution rise and fall equally and in tandem. Now, following emancipation, an 1866 treaty signed between the Tahlequah, Oklahoma-based Cherokees and the U.S. government granted the uh, tribe's freedmen, quote, all the rights of native Cherokees, end quote, according to the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. But in 2007, the tribe amended its constitution to make, quote unquote, Indian blood a requirement for citizenship. But this goes back to 1941. So the treaty that they are referring to is what's known as the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866. The Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866. This is the treaty that they're referring to. This is what I talk about in my presentation dealing with the history of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this is uh, what Dr. Claude Anderson, one of my teachers, what he talks about when he deals with the Black Freeman Indian Treaties. Okay, and I've interviewed him talking about the Black Freeman Indian Treaties um, in the past as well. And many of our ancestors were in these treaties that were between the U.S. government and the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee and Seminole Indians. And we were illegally pushed out of these treaties in 1941 when the U.S. government conspired with these Native American nations to redefine what a Native American was. And they redefined it based upon you having to have one quarter or one quantum Native American blood, but the original treaties didn't state this. Now, this is our best chance to get any type of reparations. Th these treaties are our best chance to get any type of, uh, any type of reparations, okay? It's very important for us to understand this. So this is why when... Uh, we have these conversations about reparations at the center of this needs to be enforcing the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866, because these 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 laws are still on the books today and they're being enforced by for the five civilized tribes of Native Americans. OK, they're being enforced for them and they're getting benefits each year, like free free taxes, free college tuition, free radio station licenses, TV station licenses, things like this. They're getting these benefits. But. We have been pushed out of them. Many of our ancestors were pushed out. Now, all of our ancestors were not in those treaties. This, this, this applied to those who were formerly enslaved by these five civilized tribes, civilized tribes of Native Americans and their descendants. And then also it applied to the black freedmen who lived in those territories as well, like in Oklahoma. Because what, what happens is, is – um, President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which pushed these five civilized tribes of Native Americans off their land in southeastern United States, like Georgia and Alabama and things like this, and Florida. And they were forced out west, and they went out west over a thousand miles on what's known as the Trail of Tears. Okay? One third of the people who were with them were African people because they had African slaves. Now, some people call them uh, indentured servants, okay? Well, you can call them indentured servants, but what I do know is that when the Civil War was fought from 1861 to 1865, 
all five uh, civilized tribes of Native Americans, they fought on behalf of the South, fought on behalf of the Confederacy, because they wanted to keep slavery intact. And when they picked up arms against the U.S., it violated their treaties that they would never pick up arms against the United States. So then what's going to happen is prior to the Civil War, you had Indian territories. After the Civil War, those Indian territories are going to be taken back and they're going to be put on Indian reservations. But these treaties are going to be signed. And one of the stipulations of these treaties were that uh, the enslaved Africans had to be set free. Because they didn't want to give them up. Some of them weren't freed until 1867 because they didn't want to give up these enslaved Africans. They said they're, they're sovereign nations, etc. But when they picked up arms against the U.S., they violated the treaties they had with the U.S. So then these treaties are going to be implemented. Now, this is not for all Native Americans. There are 566 federally recognized tribal nations in this country. I'm not talking about all 566. I'm talking about these five, what are known as the five civilized tribes of Native Americans. They're called civilized tribes because they adopted the ways of the white man. They learned English. They converted to Christianity. They became farmers instead of hunters, things like this. Okay. Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians. That's what's known as the five civilized tribes of Native Americans. Okay. That's what I'm referring to. Okay. Uh, Phyllis said, wow, good information. Natasha said, can you explain who are Native Americans if they're not African, European, etc.? Well, Native Americans, African people are the original Americans. This is what we have to understand. Now, yes, the transatlantic slave trade did happen. And this is, this is why in the online courses I teach, uh, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, we don't deal with the last, we don't deal with 350 years. Or we don't deal, we don't go back to 1440 when the Portuguese first got involved in the transatlantic slave trade, because the Portuguese were the first ones involved. We don't deal with from 1440 to 1888. The transatlantic slave trade lasts 448 years, from 1440 to 1888. Brazil were the last ones to outlaw the slave trade in 1888. We don't deal with 448 years. We don't deal with 500 years. We deal with at least 50,000 years. We deal with at least 50,000 thousand years because who we call the people who we call native americans are the offspring of an intermixing of african people who who have been in this land we call the united states of america going back at least fifty one thousand seven hundred years they were the khoisan the khoisan come from southern africa they have the oldest dna on the planet and dr david m hotel deals with this in his book He's a friend of mine, not related to me, not my father or my cousin. He deals with this in his book, The First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence. And I, and I reference his book in my course and in my lectures because his book has 713 footnotes. It's thoroughly documented. And he deals with the African presence in the Americas, South America, Central America, and North America, going back at least 56,000 years ago in South America. But there's new evidence pushing that date back to 100,000 years ago. But in this country, at least 51,700 years ago. And the Khoisan are the ancestors to the Ainu and the Twa. They have the oldest DNA on the planet. Okay. The Khoisan. Uh, and there was a discovery made in Allendale County, South Carolina in 2004 by Dr. Albert Goodyear, 
who is an archaeologist at the University of South Carolina, and he found overwhelming evidence of an African presence in Allendale County, South Carolina, that dates back at least 51,700 years ago. So you have Africans who are here. You also have an African presence from ancient Egypt here, ancient Kemet here as well. But you have Asians who come to this land that we call the United States of America uh, about 3000 BC. And the Africans and Asians are going to intermix and their offspring are who we call Native Americans. But you're going to, so when you look at old photographs of Native Americans, and I have uh, one of my books here dealing with Native Americans, right? Chronology, chronology of Native Americans, the ultimate guide to North America's indigenous populations, right? When you look at old black and white photographs of Native Americans, these were dark-skinned people. When you look at old black and white photographs of Native Americans, these were dark-skinned people. And then you also had nations of them that were called black Indians. These were not just the ones who were enslaved by uh Native Americans, when, when, when Europeans come to this land, right, um, the, in Jamestown, Virginia, we have the British and the British colonies, but even Spanish, things like this. They're going to reclassify a lot of these indigenous African nations as Native Americans. But these were nations that were here for thousands of years. Uh, Dr. David M. Hotep, in, the, in his book, The First Americans Were Africans, documented evidence around page 67. He talks about how Captain John Smith in Jamestown, Virginia, in 1607, Captain John Smith said he was captured by a group of black Indians. So this whole history is much deeper than we have been taught that it is. And we've been taught history inaccurately. We've been taught that we first came to this land. We call the United States of America, August 20th, 1619. On that Dutch, on that Dutch man of warship, and it was twenty some odd Africans. That did happen, but the truth of the matter is, there were more African people who were here prior to the transatlantic slave trade than came here during the transatlantic slave trade. Transatlantic slave trade did happen. You have between three hundred eighty-eight thousand to one point four million Africans brought here during the transatlantic slave trade. Only a very small percentage came to this land. Most go to South America, especially Brazil. Then they go into uh, the, the Caribbean and they go into Central America. Okay. But there were already uh, some accounts, and Dr. David Imhotep talks about this, there were millions of African people here in this land before the transatlantic slave trade happens. Okay. Now, at the time the transatlantic slave trade happens, I don't know the exact numbers of African people that were already here. We already know there were a lot already here. There were pyramid mounds that were built up and down the Mississippi River. So there was a, a, a large presence. But a lot of that gets uh, allocated to Native Americans. And they say, oh, these were Indians, these were Native Americans. But they don't tell the true story of who the Native Americans actually were. In that there were African people here before Native Americans even came into existence. So Dennis said, we're not Africans. Based upon what? Oh, he's dealing with that Hebrew Israelite nonsense. Okay. Yeah, don't come to, don't, don't, when you deal with world history, man, don't bring, don't bring religious literature into world history. You're confusing, you, you, you really should study world history. You're confusing world history 
with religious literature. Okay, you're confusing world history with religious literature. This is why these these people who are ref, ref, trying to look into the Bible and the Torah for their history, this is why they're lost. You, I'm dealing with world history, man. I'm not dealing with religious literature. You, you're on the wrong page with that. You can still watch, but you're just on the wrong page with that in more ways than one. 99.9, this may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness, but 99.9% of the people referred to in the Bible never historically existed. So when, you, when, you, when you're looking to religious literature for your history, see what happens is you have people who don't want to deal with world history. They don't want to be African. So they look to religious literature for another identity. They look to religious literature for a fictitious identity to claim so they don't, because they don't want to be African, okay? So, no, world history, world history are events that take place. Just like you claim that Israelites built the pyramids. That's history. But, you know, come on, man. Deal with, deal with world history. You don't have to be on here. Deal, deal with world history. Religious literature, world histories and world history books. Religious literature is in religious literature. Religious literature, but world history is what happened. Religious literature is the result of what happened. World history is what happened. Religious literature is, is the result of what happened. What's put into religious literature books and what's taken out is the result of historical events like the First Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., the Council of Constantinople in 381, the Council of Ephesus in 431, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the Council of Trent from 1545 to 1563. These shaped religious literature and shaped how religions would be practiced and what is Left in the Bible was taken out of the Bible, etc. So you need to really study world history, man. Look up Professor Joseph Ben Levy. You know, look up Professor Joseph Ben Levy. Do some do some real research, okay? The Bible is not world history. That's that's the problem. You said the Bible says we built the pyramid. The Bible is not world history. The Bible's religious literature. That's the problem. These were African people. These were ancient Egyptians. Slaves did not build the pyramids. That's the problem. There's no evidence of Hebrews being slaves in Israel. I mean, in, in uh, Egypt at all. The, 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 you, you, you're confusing mythology and, and you, you, you're not, you don't understand the difference between world history and religious literature. When you study world history, there's absolutely no evidence of Hebrews being slaves in Egypt. They definitely didn't build the pyramids. The reason why is if you actually understand history, the ancient Egyptians stopped building pyramids about a thousand years before the uh, Hebrews were even supposed to come into Egypt. They stopped building pyramids in the sixth dynasty around 2300 B.C. If this is what happens when you don't understand history and you come to somebody who studies history with religious literature, this is the problem. They stopped building pyramids before the Hebrews were ever supposed to have been in Egypt. So how could you build the pyramids? This is mythology. This is the problem. This may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness. Ancient Egyptians, ancient Kemetic people, they stopped building pyramids around 2300 B.C. in the 6th dynasty. 
This is one of the problems with this argument. Okay, you bringing a knife to a gunfight player, you in the, you do this. I don't I don't deal with that. Check out the interview I did with Professor Kaba Hiawatha Kamene, one of my teachers. Professor Kaba Hiawatha Kamene. I interviewed him. We talked about uh, Dr. Ben Carson, the Pyramid de Giza, and African origins of Star Wars. Because Dr. Ben Carson doing the presidential campaign, I wrote this article because I write articles also. You can read all of my articles at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. I just wrote one today. We posted it here on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network, dealing with um, um, Dick Gregory. Uh, the FBI tried to, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI tried to kill Dick Gregory back in uh, 1968, okay? But read this article, and in the video of the interview I did with Professor Kaba Kamene, who is a historian, is uh, in the article. And we dealt with Dr. Ben Carson. We dealt with the uh, ancient Egyptians uh, stopped building pyramids in the Sixth Dynasty, all that. Dr. Ben Carson said that he believed that Joseph of the Bible built the pyramids, the the pyramids at Giza. Okay. That's impossible for a number of reasons. That's impossible for a number of reasons. All right. So I just posted that link here. You read that article, watch the video, uh, and do some historical research, do some historical research. Okay. I don't deal with religious literature. Religious literature 60. and world history are two entirely different things. And if you don't know the difference, you're going to be screwed up. Okay, so those listening on Blog Talk Radio, we're going to stop broadcasting here in 60 seconds on Blog Talk. We'll still be on Facebook. You can call in and listen by phone at 914-338-1375. You'll still be able to listen by phone, 914-338-1375. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number. You'll still be able to listen by phone, okay? If you like this type of information, you definitely want to register for the online course that I teach, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Because we, we do history, not religious literature. Uh, you can register at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Also, uh, we posted the uh, link here on the thread of the broadcast on Facebook once again. Okay, we deal with world history, not religious literature. Religious world history is what happened. Religious literature is the result of what happened. Eighty. Now, this may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness. Doesn't mean it's not true. Just means you have to do some research to understand what I'm talking about. Eighty um, percent of the Bible is written hyperbole, uh, hyperbole, metaphor, parables, and allegories. Eighty percent of the Bible is written hyperbole, metaphor, parables, and allegories. Those are literary writing terms. That's what's called religious literature. Those are literary writing terms. That's not how you write history. Okay. So you have to, I mean, this is, this is deep. I don't, I don't have time to get deep into this. I get, I get these other topics to get to. But um, 
people who don't understand the difference between world history and religious literature are going to be screwed. And they usually don't understand that history. This is why when people come to me talking about biblical history, I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I mean, no. No, no, no. There's no such thing as biblical history. Those are two contradictory terms. If you actually understand world history. This is why when you study world history and they refer to biblical accounts, they say according to the Bible. They say according to the Bible, the flood happened. According to the Bible, this happened. According to the Bible, Adam and Eve. They don't say according to archaeological evidence, according to this discovery in Ethiopia, according to this discovery in Mesopotamia, according to this archaeological discovery, according to these remains. No, they say according to the Bible, and I, I always when, when I see when, when I see a reference to biblical events, I always know I always notice how they cite it. They say according to the Bible. There's a reason for that. Okay, there's a <laughs> all right. There's a reason for that. Okay. Uh, let's continue here. I want to finish this article here. Um, okay, so Cherokee, descendants of enslaved blacks owned by Cherokee Nation finally granted tribal citizenship. Following emancipation uh, of an 1866 treaty signed between the uh, Tahlequah, Oklahoma-based Cherokees and the U.S. government granted uh, the, tribes, the tribes' freedmen, quote, all the rights of native Cherokees, according to the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of the American Indian. But in 2007, the tribe amended its constitution to make Indian blood a requirement for citizenship. As a result, nearly 2,800 freedmen were stripped of their membership. National Public Radio, NPR, reported that the U.S. government opposed the tribe's vote to expel the freedmen and their descendants. At one point, uh, at one point, the U.S. Department of Housing and U.S. Department, uh, and, and sorry, at one point, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development (HUD) even cut 37 million dollars in funding to the Cherokee Nation. As a result, they get all types of funding from the U.S. government as well. For Marilyn Van, who's president of the Descendants of Freedmen of the Five Civilized Tribes, Wednesday's decision uh, is nothing short of groundbreaking. Uh, she said, quote, there can be racial justice, but it doesn't always come easy. And uh, Marilyn Van, uh, who is also one of the plaintiffs in the case, she told this to NP uh, National Public Radio NPR in an interview. She went on to say, what this means for me is the freedmen people will be able to continue our citizenship and also that. Uh, we're able to preserve our history. All we ever wanted was the rights promised us to continue to be enforced, end quote. Now, in a separate statement, Marilyn Van said, quote, going forward, I'm hoping that the tribe will come together and we can just be Cherokees, Cherokee people and not freedmen. And, and maybe we can become the most powerful tribe in the entire country, end quote. Under the judge's ruling, Cherokee freedmen would be afforded all the rights uh, that native 
Cherokees have, including the right to vote in elections, run for office, and receive health care and housing benefits, the Associated Press reported. Tom Hembry, the tribe's attorney general, said in a statement Thursday that the Cherokee Nation does not plan to appeal the decision. Um, Quote, while the U.S. District Court ruled against the Cherokee Nation, I do not see it as a defeat, um, Hembry told, uh, uh, Todd Hembry uh, wrote. He went on to say, quote, as the attorney general, I see this as an opportunity to resolve the freedman citizenship issue and allow the Cherokee Nation to move beyond that dispute. He went on to say, my office will work tirelessly to thoroughly review this decision and its legal ramifications and will move forward in a way that best serves the interests of the Cherokee Nation and its citizens, including freedmen descendants, including freedmen descendants. Okay. Now that's from AtlantaBlackStar.com. All right. Uh, descendants of enslaved blacks owned by Cherokee Nation finally granted tribal citizenship. That's from September 1st, um, 2017 by uh, Tanasia Kenny. Okay, that's from Friday, September 1st. So they had an earlier article um, from 2012, AtlantaBlackStar.com, and I read this article when it came out. Cherokee Freedman Federal Ruling Approves Lawsuit Against Cherokee Nation Chief. Federal Ruling Approves Lawsuit Against Cherokee Nation Chief. Okay, and uh, this talked about uh, the beginning of the lawsuit. This was five years ago, December 16, 2012. A ruling handed down by the U.S. Court of Appeal in the District of Columbia will allow the descendants of slaves once owned by the Cherokee Nation to proceed with lawsuits to reclaim their official membership in the tribe. The descendants of those slaves are known as Cherokee freedmen, and for decades they have battled against measures that would deny their tribal membership. The federal court's ruling grants the freedmen the ability to sue Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Bill John Baker directly, overturning a previous ruling from a lower court. So check out the rest of this article also, Cherokee freedmen. Federal ruling approves lawsuit against Cherokee Nation chief. Okay, that's from AtlantaBlackStar.com. Also, that's from 2012. Because I've been following that lawsuit and have some other articles dealing with um, this as well. Okay, but I've been following that case. So this is good news for the Cherokee freedmen. Okay. All right, so, um, all right, let's continue here. All right. So, uh, Philando Castillo is back in the news also. We know it was a little more than a year ago. Philando Castillo was executed uh, in a suburb of Minnesota. Okay, and the officer was uh, found uh, not guilty also um, in the killing of Philando Castillo. 
And when you actually when you actually research the case, they, the it, the jury was really stacked against Philando, even though Philando wasn't on trial, but in the way he was, because it was a very pro police jury that was selected. A lot of people don't know that there was an African American judge that was actually presiding over the case prior to the case starting, and the defense attorneys for the uh, officer that killed Philando Castile. Uh, uh, Yan- uh, Yanez, I think is his name. Um, but the defense attorneys motioned to have that African American judge removed from the case, and they won. And it was a white judge put over the case. Um, so it was a very pro police jury, and then the officer Yanez said made some comments uh when he testified about marijuana and these are very stereotypical comments about marijuana because he basically said that he smelled smelled marijuana in the car and he was saying what type of people would have marijuana uh in the car with a a young child in, in the back okay he didn't see them smoke marijuana okay uh, but he made very stereotypical statements about marijuana as well. So the blackhomeschool.com has an article about uh, Philando Castile and um, a uh, fund that a, a nonprofit organization has uh, been set up. A fund has been set up in his name to feed um, low-income children, to feed low-income children. Okay, we'll go to that article here in just a minute. Um, And once again, we have you, uh, let's see, broadcasting on Facebook Live, our Facebook fan page, the African History Network as well. Um, Looking at some of your comments here on Facebook. Let me pull this up because my my first phone died. So I got to look at it here on my second phone. It's not scrolling on um doesn't scroll here on Google Chrome like I wanted to. Um, Chewy said when they say according to the Bible, they're just saying there's no scientific evidence. Well, they're citing the Bible. There's no historical evidence either. They're citing the Bible. The, 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 the biblical text is... <laughs> The biblical text is religious literature. Religious literature and world history are two different things. This is what, unfortunately, a lot of our people don't understand. A lot of our people also don't understand context. So when you read the Bible, and in the Bible, when we see words, when we see words like your and my and our or we, okay, um, when we see stuff like that, we think they're talking. We think they are referring to uh, the reader who's reading the book today, in 2017, or in 2000, or in 1980, or in 1955, or on a slave plantation in 1831, because Nat Turner was literate. Because in the state of Virginia, where Nat Turner lived, it was legal for slaves to be taught how to read and write, and it was legal for them to be able to read and write up until 
the Nat Turner Rebellion, which started August 21st, 1831, because after the rebellion, the state legislature is going to change that law, and it became illegal for, for enslaved Africans to be taught to read and write in the state of Virginia. But Nat Turner was literate, and he could read the Bible. So when we see words like your and our or we or my, things like this, we think that they're talking to the reader reading it today. But we don't realize this. You have one biblical character talking to another biblical character 2,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago. So we're not taught to read in context. We're not taught to read with context to understand this, which causes a whole lot of confusion as well. All right, so um, the black uh, the blackhomeschool.com um, has this article. Philando Feeds the Children Fund launched to pay school lunch debts for low-income kids. Philando Feeds the Children Fund launched to pay uh, launched to pay school lunch debts for low-income children. All right. So prior to um, uh, the killing of Philando Castile in uh, July of 2016. Uh, Philando was a caring cafeteria supervisor at J.J. Hill Montessori, uh, which, was a pub- which is a public school in St. Paul, Minnesota. The young children at J.J. Hill uh, Montessori, not to be confused with J.J. Fad, the, the, the young children uh, at the Montessori school affectionately called, uh, called him Mr. Field, okay, and in his job as a cafeteria supervisor, Philando exemplified his genuine care for the public school students at J.J. Uh, Hill Montessori. Uh, and times can get hard for children who eat reduced lunch that come from uh, lower middle class, who come from lower middle class families. So um, Philando Castile understood this and would frequently go into his own pocket to help out children who had debts associated with their school lunches. Okay, so if they owed money for school lunches or owed too much money, they couldn't get any more lunch. He would go into his pocket and pay for their lunch. So after Castile's death in July of 2016, Pam Fergus. F-E-R-G-U-S, Pam Fergus, who's a professor at Minnesota's uh, Inver Inver Hills Community College, I-N-V-E-R, Inver Hills Community College, came up with an idea to keep the uh, slain humanitarian's legacy of helping school children alive. In an interview with uh, WCCO Channel 4 uh, there in Minneapolis, uh, a CBS News affiliate of Minneapolis, um, she said uh, she talked about uh, Philando Feeds the Children Fund. Philando Feeds the Children Fund. She said his death changed who I am. Um, she, uh, Fergus, uh, now her original plan um, for implementing the Philando Feeds the Children Fund involved raising $5,000 to clear all school lunch deals, uh, clear all school lunch debts held by children who attend schools in uh, St. Paul uh, Public School, in the St. Paul Public School District. However, the goal was nearly achieved in a week, okay? So the original plan 
was to um, raise $5,000 to clear uh, the school lunch debts that the children had in the St. Paul Public School District. They achieved this goal in a week. Uh, so uh, Pam Fergus said that I think that's her first name. Uh, yeah, Pam. Pam Fergus said, quote, I thought a $5,000 goal was enormous, but every but but people are amazing. Okay. Now, the professor also said she spoke with Philando Castile's mother, Valerie, about her plan and um, about her plans. And Fergus claims she received the full support of Philando Castile's mother. Quote, she said, the only thing I want for my son is for people to remember him with honor and, and dignity. Okay. So to date, the Philando Feeds the Children Fund has raised $50,000. Money is being raised via a crowdfunding effort on the YouCaring Philanthropic Online Platform. YouCaring Philanthropic Online Platform. Okay, so that's a great story. Um, and it's a cause that um, Philando Castile was uh, passionate about as well. Okay. All right. All right, so uh, check out that article at um, theblackhomeschool.com, theblackhomeschool.com. Um, Philando Feeds the Children Fund launched to pay school lunch debts for low-income kids, okay? Philando, feed the, uh, Philando Feeds the Children Fund launched to pay school lunch debts for low-income kids, all right? Okay, so um, this date in African history and African-American history, we're going to go to that in just a minute here. And remember here on Facebook Live, you'll be able to watch this broadcast after it's over. And then also you'll be able to listen to uh, the podcast on our uh, at our Blog Talk Radio page, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show. Uh, as well. You can listen to the audio podcast there. All right, so uh, we'll go to this date in African history and African-American history here in just a minute. Okay, uh, I want to remind you, you can uh, still register for the online course that I teach, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. So it's a 12-hour, six-week online course uh, that I teach. We deal with thousands of years of history. We deal with African history, African-American history. We deal with events leading up to the transatlantic slave trade. We deal with Christopher Columbus and his four voyages, the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors. We deal with ancient Egypt. We deal with the African presence in this country going back at least 51,700 years ago, the origins of race, the origins of racism. So 12-hour, six-week online course. As soon as you register, you can watch the first four sessions we've done. Session number five is this Friday, um, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., uh, September 8th. All the sessions are recorded, okay, as well. So if you miss anything, you can go back and watch it over and over again. We also have about 20 hours of bonus content that you'll be able to watch as well. So we posted the link there. It says register here. 
And uh, you can also register at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. The course is only $40. And then also um, we have uh, other courses of mine that I teach. We have one starting up next week, Tuesday, Empire Strikes Black, the Propaganda of the Media. Empire Strikes Black, the Propaganda of the Media as well. Okay. So you can check that out. And uh, we have a bundle pack uh, on sale that went on sale today. Also, uh, the Redistributing the Pain uh, bundle pack. Uh, Redistributing the Pain bundle pack. Uh, you get six of my DVD presentations uh, for $40. That's regularly, I think that's regularly like $95, something like that. So we know that um, August 21st, August 21st, uh, a couple of Tuesdays ago, was when you had the um, um, eclipse, the solar eclipse that took place, first solar eclipse, first nationwide solar eclipse since 1918, okay? Well, that day was also the beginning uh, of the Nat Turner Rebellion of 1831 as well, okay? So in this bundle pack, uh, you get six of my DVD presentations. You get my presentation from November 2016, after the film The Birth of a Nation came out, the Nat Turner Rebellion of 1831, The Rebirth of a Nation. You'll get uh, The Time We Have Been Waiting For Is Now, The Time We Have Been Waiting For Is Now, Colin Kaepernick, The National Anthem, Too Many Slave Movies, and The Black Bank Movement. I did that September 24, 2016. So I deal with a lot of information dealing with Colin Kaepernick, his protests, what it was about, things like this. Uh, you get redistributing the pain, how African-Americans historically fought back with economic boycotts. So I deal with a history of this using different types of economic withdrawal strategies to fight back against white supremacy and racism. Uh, and then also you get a presentation I did at African Liberation Day 2016, uh, which is an overview of redistributing the pain. I deal with some other topics also. You get my presentation dealing with the U.S. Constitution and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And uh, also how Richard Nixon's war on drugs was a war on the African-American community. I did this September 25th, 2016, how Richard Nixon's war on drugs was a war on the African-American community. So that is a uh, six-DVD bundle pack, redistributing the pain bundle pack. Uh, it's regularly $95 on sale for $40 at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. So we just posted the link there um, so you can uh, order that also. Okay. All right. So this date in African American history, we'll do a September 4th first, and then we'll do a September 5th. The city of Los Angeles, California, was partially founded by uh, African people. On this date in 1781, nearly 30 of the 44 uh, settlers were of African descent. Okay, that's a little known history fact dealing with uh, Los Angeles, California. Uh, on September 4th in 1848, Lewis H. Latimer, Lewis Howard Latimer, who was an inventor, electrical engineer, and draftsman, was born September 4th, 1848. In 1881, Lewis Latimer patented the incandescent electric lamp using tiny carbon wires or carbon filament to light the light bulb. September 4th, 1908, Richard Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, Richard Wright, author of Native Son and Black Boy, was born in Roxy, Mississippi. And um, September 4th, 1923, Dr. Uh, George Washington Carver 
who is the head of the Department of Research and director of the experiment uh, station at Tuskegee Institute, received the ninth NAACP Spengarn Medal on this date in 1923 for his distinguished research in agricultural chemistry. Okay. Um, September 4th, 1957, the Little Rock Nine, the Little Rock Nine, um, made up of Minnie Jean Brown, Elizabeth Eckford, Ernest Green, Thelma Mothershed, uh, Melba Patillo, Gloria Ray, Terrence Roberts, Jefferson Thomas, and Carletta Walls were unsuccessful in their attempt to integrate Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, September 4th, 1957. Okay. They, they were met by a hateful mob and by the National Guard. Uh, it said they, were, they were met by a hateful mob and by the National Guard called in by Governor uh, Orville Faubus. F-A-U-B-U-S, but we know eventually they were successful in uh, integrating um, Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, okay? So that's September 4th, and if we look at this date in African-American history and um, uh, look at African-American history, this date in African-American history and African history, September 5th, um, this date in 1846, John Wesley Cromwell, John Wesley Cromwell, editor, historian, and secretary of the American Negro Academy, was born in Portsmouth, uh, Virginia, or Portsmouth, Virginia. Um, this date in 1859, Harriet E. Wilson published um, uh, Our Nig, N-I-G, on this date in 1859. The work is believed to be the first uh, novel written by a black woman. Uh, this date in 1977, a white teenager wearing, a not, wearing Nazi clothing, clothing shot into a crowded church picnic uh, of over 200 African-Americans in Charlotte, North Carolina, on this date in 1977. One person was killed and two were injured. Another victim died two days later. You can read more facts about this date in African history and African-American history um, at Yenoba, Y-E-N-O-B-A, Yenoba.com, Yenoba.com. Uh, also, you can check out um, uh, blackpass.org, blackpass.org, and blackdan.com, blackdan.com as well, okay? All right, so be sure to visit our website, africanhistorynetwork.com, africanhistorynetwork.com. We have a lot of information there for you. All of my DVD lectures are there. We have articles uh, there that I write. Um, video clips, um, the audio podcasts of our shows are there also. We have almost 800 uh, podcasted episodes of our shows there as well, okay? So remember at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and empowering, we focus on educating, inspiring, and empowering people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. Peace.